Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park eerily quiet and then my mind was kind of like you know the head in the fishbowl but it takes me into the bathroom and says this is how you brush your teeth brush rinse repeat brush rinse repeat brush rinse repeat but there were two girls and it was like you don't have to give us a ride you can't fill us no he can't refuse us he'll let us in his car thoughts were all alone in this empty void you know the head in the they got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and, and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. These gremlin-type creatures. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers. Three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. Guys, back on Conspiranormal. It's been a couple of weeks since we recorded a show. How you doing there, Rob? I'm doing good. You're little, you're a little sedate today. Yeah, well, usually like I'll eat a normal lunch and then we start doing the podcast and then somewhere in the middle of the evening I start starving to death. Uh-huh. So I thought today I'd wait and I'd do like a, like a three o'clock sort of a lunch, you know. But by then I was so hungry that I ate way too much. So my body is just focused on digestion right now and not thinking. Having crab cakes. No, not crab cakes, just uh, fried fish fry. Fish fry, okay. Yeah. Guinness battered fish fry. Yes, it was delicious. Mmm, yum. Well, uh, just to tell everybody, Luke is not here. I know that's a big surprise for everyone. There's fans that don't even know who he is, Adam. I think we can stop. Like, think so? <laughs> stop announcing that every week. Yeah. Some just, people are like, who? Luke who? I've never yeah, even heard of him. They keep saying that every week that Luke's not here. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's become the running current joke on the show, for sure. Um, but, uh, guys, I know that we have lately kind of stayed away from the political stuff, and we have our own reasons for doing that. I think one of the reasons is is there's something happening just about every week now, and it's been just really hard to keep up with it. And the other thing is to cut some reviews. I kind of kept to heart to try to like, you know, change the direction of the show a little bit. We covered so much politics during 2016 that it was just, it just got to the point where it got old. I think it got old for us. I think it got old for the listeners, but this last week, it's been pretty unavoidable. I think to talk about uh, what happened in Charlottesville. Uh, What was it last Saturday? Rob? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And 
Basically, if anyone doesn't know, I'm not going to go over too much of the facts, but apparently there was this neo-Nazi or white supremacist rally that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, that was all about, well, the catalyst of it was this proposal to get rid of a statue of Robert E. Lee in, I think, the town square or on the University of Virginia campus. And things got ugly, and people died. And then we've had all the whole rigmarole about the president and what he's come out and said, uh, Trump basically making contradictory statements. So I thought that instead of us kind of trying to go over it a little bit, I would pull someone else in to try to make sense of all this. And that is our good friend, Dr. Future. It's going to help us out here in the intro. Dr. Future, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, shoehorning me in here with it. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about all this all last week about what happened there. I think it's probably pretty much been on everybody's mind. Um, it just dominated the news this last week, even though there was a fairly. Uh, large-sized terrorist attack in Spain as well, but that did not make as much headlines as what happened to Charlottesville. And I can say pretty much that really what happened there in Charlottesville really bothered me. Uh, The open warfare on the streets, um, the just the white supremacist presence, the president coming out and basically almost virtually apologizing for these guys. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it, Mike. What do you think? What do you think is going on here? Well, that's a pretty loaded question. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of things we could. You do have say five or six hours, don't you, for me to get started on this? <laughs> yeah, no, not uh, really. But <laughs> well, um, you know, <clears throat> trying to see what's really going on, and, and I, I I would say that that probably. It was the presidential response is what made this a big story as much as the initial activities of the combatants or the people who were involved. Mm -hmm. But we know what the official response has been from the government that um, basically boys will be boys. Both sides are, you know, at fault for the scuffling that went on and. And there's certainly, you know, some reasonable questions as why did the authorities wait so long to separate groups and things like that, you know. Uh, That's that's a fair argument to be made. But, you know, it's very curious. I wonder when I think about the people that come from um, the background where I was raised, uh, more the Trump supporter right side of things, you know, um, they have been very adamant all of a sudden about free speech, and about that uh, the Nazis should have their free speech to be able to say their things, and really it was everybody's fault there on what happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of surprised that they did, They haven't been so strong on free speech when peaceful people like gay community or transgender community or others have thought to march. Uh, they've been very, very strong in their in their opposition to these people just having their First Amendment right to march or express their views. But if you have Nazis that come along um, that want to do harm against people of other races, well, then they're gung-ho behind that. 
And so they've been very supportive if Nazis show up for things. And I really wonder, this whole thing about the apologist for the Nazis and what they're doing, if if the scuffle had involved, let's say, uh, some Jewish Holocaust survivors that were there, or maybe American Legion, some old uh, soldiers that used to be, uh, you know, fighting these guys, or maybe lost some of their buddies at war to these kind of guys. Do you think the public uh, would have reacted in the same way? I don't know. That's just, well, probably not. I'm assuming that they might not have been empathetic to the Nazis. Had had the scuffle been, again, with Holocaust survivors or American Legion or veterans or something. So then the question really comes, is it really just exposing the ire against the people who who confront fascism? It seems like that the biggest thing that more set the table for people and where they fell was the nature of the people who opposed mm-hmm. the uh, the Nazis themselves when they were marching. Well, the big focus in the, I guess you would say, you know, the radio talk shows, conservative radio, the big focus has been on Antifa. And the big focus has also been on them on social media as well. Antifa wasn't the only group that was there. They may have been the most vocal. They may have actually, may have actually been violent in some ways, but they were not the only people that were there protesting. I mean, it was a wide group, a wide variety of people. So the, the, um, the focus though has been on there opposing the only people we know that weren't opposing the Nazis were the religious right people. Yeah. But you, you did have Christian groups that were there, um, opposing them too. Like, uh, Cornell West and his people were out there trying to set some kind of positive tone. Uh, I'd say most of the people, that were there were doing that. Now, if Antifa came in with uh, baseball bats or whatever the, whatever it is that they had and started fighting the, the Nazis or the white supremacists, any time that there's any kind of thing like this, that where these people go into, the, into cities, and this has happened before, where they the the neo nazis have gone into a town and they've done their rallies every time there are always people that are protesting against them there are always counter protesters right and these counter protesters are not the ones getting the permit for the protest they're usually just showing up mm-hmm. so it doesn't really matter if you have a permit or not apparently that was another thing that trump said that there's these peaceful protests that they were doing a peaceful protest, the, uh, the, these neo-Nazis, and they had the permit, and the other groups didn't have the permit. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's just how these things go. Whenever you're going to have – I'm sure that if there was some militant left-wing group, you would have some other – another that had the permit. You'd have a militant right-wing group that would come in without a permit. So, well, anytime you've had like a, a gay organization march uh-huh. or a Muslim group or something like that, you're going to get the Christians there getting pretty vehement. You know, I, I doubt that uh, Westboro Baptist Church always got permits. Yeah, when they when they went and protested uh, these things. But you know, I, I just think about the the good people of the streets of Germany 
in the 19, late 1920s, early 30s. Uh, a lot of Christian folk, church-grown folk there. Um, if they would, when they think about their passive response when the Nazis were small and marched through their cities then, um, and they would look on where we are today, where they're, they're now seeing again these guys with the torches like the Nuremberg rallies marching through major cities doing these kind of things. What do you think their response would be? Would they think it would be a good idea to just sort of let the boys have their fun and that it, nothing will come of it, uh, nothing's going to happen? I wonder what their perspective would be, you know, as they rose from the rubble of, of a destroyed Europe, whether whether uh, just letting them do their thing is, is, is the way to do it. I, I, I'm a definite believer in free speech, don't get me wrong, yeah. but... These guys were armed to the hilt, expecting mm-hmm. a fight. And yes, in, they were. in some ways, in some ways, you could say, "Well, fell into the trap of these Nazi guys when these guys sort of, you know, confront them." Um, that that's what they wanted. They wanted a scrap like that. But if not enough people show up to show them that you have over that that they can't use their force because there's overwhelming numbers that oppose their views. And they can't use force to get about their will. Then, uh, you know, these, these guys feel like all, you know they're going to eventually get their way and do whatever. And because people won't show up and make a peaceful protest in adequate numbers, that's when I think you see these kind of groups pop up. Yeah. Because no one else seems to be stepping up. You know, I really wonder where were the uh, veterans associations? Where were they for things like this? Where were they, all the other Christian organizations, which could dwarf, you know, and I'm sure there was word way ahead of time, particularly in Charlottesville, you know, about these marches that go. Where, mm-hmm. where are these timid people? Yeah, this has been going uh, on for a long time. I mean, the whole debate about toppling the statue has been going on for a while. And yeah. then the, the white supremacists wanting to come to Charlottesville has been going on for a while. Uh, I mm-hmm. believe that they were actually, I did find out later on that uh, they were actually turned down at one point, but they made a free speech yeah. appeal and then they got, right. the, because that was my my thought was, why did Charlottesville allow this to happen? Yeah. And Well, I think even the ACLU probably helped them, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because they're honest brokers and they do believe there is a First Amendment and People have the right to give ugly views. Right. But given the history of the Nazis, given the untold millions of people who died because they never really just wanting to express their views, but that what they wanted to do was to take over the streets. And they already have a track record. Mm-hmm. This is something we already know what their modus operandi is. You have to have overwhelming show display of resistance to people like this. I mean, preferably nonviolent, but, but a show. A show in the streets to show, you know, we're not going to go for this. But the, the concern I have is that I really sense a lot of people have, in so many words, sort of a sympathy of their anti-immigrant message that they portray. And, and a couple thoughts I have about this, uh, you know, uh, President Trump gave this equivalence of, well, there was violent actors on both sides, and you really can't blame one side more than the other because of violence. And I have to say, when it comes to Nazis, using that line of thinking, then we have to go back and look at history and equally blame the the Polish army 
for the start of World <laughs> War Two. Yeah, because, they were you know, just they, scrapped, they were just supposed to be passive and let them put the, the, well, they get rolled over. The yeah, German. I mean, the Polish army. I mean, they were shooting back, weren't they? I, I from all I know, they were shooting back when when the German Blitzkrieg rolled through. So you got to really blame the uh, the Polish and also the French resistance. And as I mentioned on my blog, and if people are not aware of that, I write something called the Two Spies Report. It's twospiesreport.wordpress.com. I call it the Christian Minority Report. It's sort of based on the two the two spies that uh, went against the majority view uh, about taking action. And uh, in there, uh, you know, I, I make these points as well as the French Resistance. Because the French resistance also used violence as much as the uh, Nazis did in France. And in fact, I mean, you would have to blame the French resistance for having bombed all those railroad tracks uh, along the way. Because all all the Nazis were trying to do was to use those railroad cars to (laughs) get all those people out to safety. Right, right. Resettle them in the east, right? All those Frenchmen, yeah, for their safety, sent them out to the Far East. Bergen, Belzen, and places like that. So, you know, you got the French resistance guilty, too. So I think if we start that line of thinking, uh, you know, of Nazi apologies, we've got to go look at a whole bunch of other bad guys, too, that oppose the Nazis. And uh, as far as the statue thing, in my view, maybe I'm tainted by my, by my faith, but statues are basically just idols. And the other argument I heard our president and, and all of his religious rights supporters uh, have said, is that, well, we're going to forget our history if we yeah. get rid of these statues, and then the history will just be long gone and we'll never know. Yeah. And I'm afraid that, that statues are not built to try to give an, you know, an accurate history lesson. What they're meant to do is to venerate. Right. And, and, and statues here's are the- to idolize people who have certain attributes that we see that are idyllic. Well, here's the and, thing and about we to well, here's the thing about that as far as the statues go. I mean, I used to, I, I, I used to believe in that line of thinking. I just like you know, because I, you know, I love history. I don't want to, I don't right. want to see history sure. erased. So I've really had to examine in the last week or so my status, my my stance on right. that. I really didn't think of it other than like, well, let's not take that away because it. It can serve to be a reminder, blah, blah, blah. But then you really look at it and you really think about it. You know, even Lee himself, the statue of the man that they're that they were so vehemently against pulling down, said that he didn't want statues erected. And in the immediate Civil War era, post-Civil War era, there was not any statues erected. And it really wasn't until reconstruction a little bit after and some of it was veterans groups that did this stuff at the, at the parks era. but a lot of this stuff that's in public places are in, in, in are non-national parks because all the battlefields are national parks and they're in their proper context a lot of these places they put these up because that was the dominance of the of the new south over the blacks mm-hmm. and during the right. Jim Crow era the same with right. the confederate flag so there was right. a reason for that. Yeah. We we don't build statues just merely because we want to teach history lessons, and that's the most efficient and accurate way to teach history. Mm-hmm. We build statues for people we want to emulate. 
And in, in line with that thinking of what our president said and, and his religious rights supporters, I have decided that if if those who develop armed rebellion against our government uh, to form the government that they the way they think to fit you know, uh, with their views of things, and they have to use armed insurrection, and we should commemorate those people. Because if we don't do it in statues, then the whole history is going to be forgot. So we need <laughs> statues for those people. Yeah. That in spirit with that, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm already thinking about going to Oklahoma City, and I'm going to build a statue to Timothy McVeigh <laughs> and put it in downtown Oklahoma City because he, he has similar standing. You know, he took a stand against the government with his own views. And many who believe in his views, in fact, many of those people who marched uh, had his views. And so would, don't you think it would be fitting that we'd build the statue of Timothy McVeigh there? Wouldn't he be equally deserving? Well, Because if you don't, you're going to forget about him. He'll never huh? know he exists unless we have a statue for him down there. And I don't think that, would, that shouldn't upset any of the citizens of Oklahoma City, do you? I mean, no, I wouldn't think so. Not they at need all. The history lesson. Right. They need the history lesson. <laughs> they need the history lesson. In fact, <laughs> when I was thinking further, I was thinking about maybe getting a statue of uh, President Jackson, Andrew Jackson, and having some of those put on some of the uh, reservations, Indian reservations. Yeah, all, all over Oklahoma. Right. Right next Where to the casinos. And have some of like uh, some bronze statues of the Indians on the Trail of Tears in front of him marching by, showing their gratitude. Uh, I think that would be a good history lesson for them. And in fact, I even think maybe what we should do, because, you know, why would they be so sensitive? You yeah. know, with stuff right. like that. And, and I even thought maybe we could get some statues of John D. Rockefeller and put them outside a lot of the mines, you know, where the mine workers are to show where he took charge, you know, over the, the uh, union uh, union busting, you know, where he brought the goons in and shot the shot the mine workers and stuff up in the Northwest, too. Mm-hmm. I think that would be fitting, don't you? Don't you agree? I mean, they shouldn't be offended by any of that, should they? No, I wouldn't think so. Well, here's a couple, yeah. here's a couple of things that I saw on social media over the last week, and it's, of course, all over. Of course, everything is a meme. Everything has to be distilled down to a meme where you're supposed to say, oh, yeah, that's right. I completely changed my opinion on my whole yeah. stance and my whole issue of this because of, this, because of these, these three words. A uh, couple of things that I saw. One was the bust of Abraham Lincoln that was, I think, somewhere in, like, South Side or Chicago that had been destroyed. And this was supposed to get everybody's ire up to think about it, just how dumb these these leftist liberals are that they would destroy this statue of Abraham Lincoln. Well, the truth is, when you really look, 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 look at it, it's in a bad area. It's been being destroyed for, like, the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> it's just somebody took a picture of it. Somebody got the picture of it and put it online. And it probably had absolutely nothing to do with this issue. But you have people out there on Facebook that are like, oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, look how dumb those libtards are. Uh, the second thing that I saw was a statue of Jesus. And it said, how long before we take these down? Yeah. Like. Because uh, Civil War genders are the same thing. Right. As Jesus. Yeah. I, I'm really like I, I'm just like well, 
Maybe the same Nazis that were protecting that other statue in Charlottesville will come protect Jesus' statue. And the religious right and the Nazis can march together. (laughs) This was a Catholic Jesus statue, so it's probably not going to happen. I just wanted to point that out. But (laughs) I don't know. You got got Opus Dei, and you got the... uh, Oh, sure. Like to Malta, and you know the the line gets sort of vague with all those groups. Once you're all libertarian, yeah. as long as you're not stepping on each other's toes, you know they right. don't mind running. Uh, um, what what was the uh, stay behind units there in uh, in Europe? The um, Operation Gladio. Gladio. You know they had Gladio, and then they imported that to Central America. A lot of that was the uh, hard right uh, Catholics that did that. So. You know, helping uh, Perón and Pinochet and stuff like that. So, it's a similar spirit. You know, they get along just fine until they start fighting on the same piece of real estate. So, to be devil's advocate here just for a second, I mean, you do have extremist viewpoints on the left where people mm-hmm. will say, oh, well, we should take down statues of Jefferson and Washington because they were slave owners and we should, we should take those, we should take all that stuff down. That is, I think, in some ways, an extremist point of view. Yeah, and you and you also do have very radical, violent groups like Antifa. But again, Antifa was not the only people there. That's just what the media and the the conservative talk shows um, that they hopped on that about Antifa. It, it just you know well, because the, because they attacked the Nazis first the poor Nazis that, and, and that's why I say if you had people like Holocaust survivors or American Legion mm-hmm. or somebody if they had also scuffled with these Nazis and they have good reason to if that had happened people wouldn't have said a word but their their whole concern about this about the the concern you know that people get the Nazis is because they're leftist is why. A lot of the people I know, yeah. you know, have taken their stand yeah. against them. And why the the people of faith, just like they did in the Nazis in the 30s, they stand around their hands in their pockets. Or they they sort of, they won't say, hey, I'm sympathetic to the Nazi cause, but really I sort of like their immigration stance. I like the fact that they're trying to stop these brown people from coming in here and taking jobs and changing the culture, which I'm on top uh, so there's a lot of sympathies there that just go unspoken. In fact, if people go to my uh, my blog post that I had just put up, it's called, uh, I, I think it says, uh, White Supremacist in uh, the Religious Right, a Match Made in Valhalla. Uh, you'll actually see uh, my argument, and I say this as a practicing Christian myself, uh, that come from a conservative background myself. But, you know, I'd, I'd like to actually... In whatever kind of political view I have anything else, if I'm going to be a Christian, I'd like to also try to stick on the principles Jesus taught. And I hate to sacrifice Jesus' principles to be a good Christian in good standing. Yeah. And so in that, uh, I actually show how, even though they won't admit it, there's this long legacy of history of white supremacist position that all of the main key leaders in the religious right have tremendous skeletons in their closet. And that may be why they're such apologists for the Nazis in cases like this. Well, you talk about in that blog post, you talk about the Ku Klux Klan, uh, like 15%, I guess, of yeah. uh, 
of whites or white Christians at the time were members of the Ku Klux Klan. This was in the 1920s. 15% uh, of the, in the public of like the white male, you know, uh, people would be eligible to join were, were members. That's the New World Encyclopedia, by the way. Right, and that's uh, not just in the South. That's that's everywhere in the country, Midwest, West. The largest is Indiana. Right, right, 20%, exactly. 20% of Indiana, including the governor, the head of the Supreme Court. Actually, we had a sitting Supreme Court member. I believe Hugo Black, I believe, uh, was, was a member of the Klan. Uh, but it was very big in the West, in the Midwest, upper Midwest, too. Could you relay the story that you talk about in the in the blog post about uh, your brother's experience with some of these people? Yeah, this is in yeah, the '80s. Yeah. I mean, this is fairly recent right. time. Right, right. Particularly for an old guy like me. Uh, my brother was a uh, um, a lay preacher. He was ordained, um, uh, licensed assistant pastor at at sort of a, a little bit of a rural church just outside of Louisville in a town called Shepherdsville, still where a lot of my family lives. And uh, it was a church that went through real revival, real spiritual renewal. I mean, the town drunk came to the Lord during a prayer meeting there, came into the place, caused a big revival. I mean, it was growing, a very joyful kind of place. And and it grew so fast that the people of the uh, congregation built their own church. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful church, brand new. And one of the groups that had been invited to come shortly after that was a choir that had a couple African-American singers in it. And again, like I said, this is in my modern era. Uh, But on Wednesday night, my brother's teaching, and uh, one of the uh, senior fathers of the church there stood up, and uh, he said, uh, this church will not have African-American. Well, he didn't use that term. Uh, People that were African-Americans be coming to that church. And he carried a lot of weight because he was sort of the one of the guys with heavy pull in the church, but he also uh, had had a reputation for Klan activity because the Klan was real strong in that area. And uh, I think his son, if I remember right, was even thrown out of the Klan for being too aggressive on activities. And uh, my brother said, well, look, you know, they're always going to be welcome here. They're welcome to worship with us any time. And he mm-hmm. said, well, we'll see about that. And a few days later, uh, that brand-new church burnt to the ground. Right, because and, that's what uh, jesus found, that's what Jesus would have done. Well, you know, it's like they say in Vietnam, so to save a village, sometimes you have to destroy it. Yeah. And uh, that was that mindset. And uh, so it was burnt to the ground, and you think, well, gee, this is stuff you just see in old movies, but... Uh, it's still alive and well, and I even quoted, I found some old newsletters from that town but, you know, back in the 20s when the Klan had their biggest revival. And it was basically the mainstream, the preachers were the ones all trying to promote it. And I show some pictures on a blog post where they would have Sunday mornings where not just this church, but, you know, across the country, where the Klans would be invited to come into the church for recruiting drives. And it was not just in the South. It was It was everywhere. And they'd bring them in just like you'd have these Gideon guys passing out Bibles today. Well, then they clan people signing up if you want to be a Christian warrior. And, you know, it was the same message. In fact, the the blog post starts out listing the platform that they really developed, which was for things like prayer in schools, reading the Bible in schools, strong Americanism, uh, a host of other kind of things that we would associate with the conservative 
right-wing religious right platform today, and it was all really solidified during the heyday of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Uh, and then and there was the Christian warriors. There was another group that you mentioned too, the C, the CCC. Yeah, Council of Concerned Conservatives, Conservative Citizens, Council of Conservative Citizens. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they really, you know, in the forties, fifties, things like that, really held sway, particularly in the South, to to make sure that there was a white supremacist atmosphere at the schools and things like that. And some of the things I met, you know, I encourage people to read more about that group. But uh, some of the regular speakers there were people like uh, Tony Perkins, head of the Family Research Council, right. um, Mike Huckabee, uh, Trent Lott, people like this. And then later they would try to cover over it, you know. And I mentioned that, uh, you know, Family Research Council group I mentioned a lot. They're probably one of the most high-profile people in the religious right parachurch organization. They're the ones that got General Boykin uh, in second command. And it, uh, their their head, Tony Perkins, is shown there buying David Duke's mailing list. Now, what to, does that to, mean when you buy a mailing list? I didn't quite understand that. What, what does that oh, mean? Oh, it's the name and addresses of people you find that are sympathetic gotcha. okay. to your beliefs. So the, the, the point being that people who would be so sympathetic to David Duke's Nazi beliefs, that they in Klan beliefs, that they would be providing him money, would have a worldview that would provide David Duke money that naturally they would support groups like the Family Research Council. And David Duke was there on the ground in Charlottesville and he right. he came out and thanked Trump for his support, basically. Yeah, so it's good to know. Yeah. It's good to know that the president of the United States has the has the um, support of David Duke. And they seem to be totally unconcerned about. It. Well, you know, he said on TV earlier in the campaign that I, I don't know anything about David Duke, and then they showed pictures of him with David Duke and <laughs> talking about him and everything else afterwards. He didn't. He didn't know what uh, any of that was. He didn't even know what white supremacist was. He said, "I don't know what David Duke believes." Which, yeah. if we, I can't imagine having that unlearned a guy to be our president if he really didn't know that. Even, even on the rare case that he was telling the truth, which we know otherwise. Which uh, uh, there's a connection there, David Duke, to something we talked with you previously on this show. Connection to the Georgia Guidestone stuff too. Right. So. Right. That's right. And, and, again, you had a case mentioning the Catholics. You had a nice, loyal Catholic follower that uh, espoused those race superiority views of Duke and William Shockley and uh, mm-hmm. built the Georgia Gadstones uh, monument for the, for the same case, too. So um, this stuff never seems to go away. You know, it's like athlete's foot. Yeah. It just keeps coming back. But, but the common theme, and why I don't pull any punches for taking sides, is that it's built on the premise of superiority of some people over others. And I know God says very clearly, he says, I'm no respecter of persons. And so when you're a respecter of persons, you're against God. It's good old American fascism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it makes its way in, you know, in spiritual settings and a lot of our churches and things like this, and it's something they've not dealt with. And uh, in, in the blog post, you can read a lot about Jerry Falwell's very obvious intentions in education to uh, to make his schools white only, 
as well as Bob Jones, and how, uh, you know, the thing that really surprised me when I was doing research for one of my book volumes I was writing uh, was that the whole foundation of the religious right, when it was founded by the person of the religious roundtable and then became moral majority and things like this, you know, people, when I was growing up, that's good Christian people, that's what you supported because you wanted to bring America back, and it was a little bit of a wild west in the 70s, morally, to be honest. But uh, what what they admitted in their writings when I read it was that, you know, the abortion issue, as I always thought, was the thing that really galvanized this religious right movement. It had nothing to do with it. It was actions by the Carter administration to threaten the removal of tax-exempt status for schools that would not allow uh, other races to attend school. Yeah. That if you were segregated, you couldn't do it. And so first Bob Jones University and then uh, Falwell and these other guys got scared that they were going to have to integrate, and that's what really got the religious rights started. And the moral majority starts around the same time, the late 70s, as you point out in the blog post. Right. And I want to be clear right. for the audience that you know we're talking about this primarily because of the reactions of people like Jerry Falwell Jr., right. who's very right. close to all of this milieu, that right. he, that he has come out and said, you know, he supports Trump's uh, just what Trump said right. about the about the statues, and right. you know, so so this you this is a pattern. This is you know, you're this is not a surprise to you necessarily, right? And the uh, their response has been when people said, look, you know, we got Nazis with torches saying, Jews, you're not going to replace us, marching our major cities. And their response is, well, what about the leftist? And I'm assuming if they look back at the era of the rise of Nazi Germany and the Nazis in the 20s there, to be consistent, that would still be their response. Well, the Nazis weren't the big story in Germany. It was all these other little splinter groups. That's that's what we got to worry about. Yeah. Rob, I want to get your opinion on some of this before we got to go to the to the next guest i think we should go rewatch american history x all of us yeah it's a good movie mm-hmm. have you ever seen that mike no you know i don't think i have yeah. it's edward norton's journey from uh like a neo-nazi white supremacist to a uh, reformed yeah which it's yeah. it's it's pretty deep and dark and intense, but yeah, well, I'd like to see that. You know, uh, there's a there's a guest that that we had, Aaron Taylor, uh, wrote I think interview with a jihadist, mm-hmm. and he was a guy raised in a pretty strict fundamentalist Christian background, want to be a missionary and save the world, which is all great. Uh, you know, very similar background I had, but when he was confronted by documentary filmmakers with one of these extremist jihadist Muslims. Um, and they got in a room one-on-one to talk, he suddenly realized that a lot of the worldview he had about the other people was the same that this jihadist had. And yeah. this jihadist was not interested at all at you know coming to terms or anything like that. But what, what this Christian man, came, young man, he's very young, took away from this is that I'm seeing in many ways a reflection of myself in this guy, particularly as far as looking at other people who are different as being a threat, having to take some kind of extreme actions, raising these kind of alarms that the hordes are coming, you know, to rape our women and things like this. 
and he had a complete about face. And so that was another man's journey similar to that, a real world kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we have to start asking ourselves, uh, regardless of what each of us, where we came from and our background, uh, do we want to help each other in the struggle of life, different colors, cultures, orientations, things like that? Do we want to just sort of accept we all come from different stuff and try to help each other with the challenges of life? we got enough challenges right now with uh, environmental problems and limited, you know, food and health care crisis and everything else in the world that just the world's dealing with us without making our own problems. Yeah, yeah, well put. And we could sure use for us putting the silly kind of stuff like the tint of our skin or, or uh, you know, some other kind of debatable things, you know putting that behind us and the fact that we come from some different cultures and we really need all hands on deck to just try to help solve these very legitimate problems we have. Right. And, uh, so, you know, my, my biggest burden, because I am a person of faith, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus and I see his name run through the mud by these people and I take it personal and it makes me mad and angry because there ought to be people out there trying to minister to people and trying to help stop misunderstanding, trying to, trying to tone down, things like this. You know, these people who think their race is better than anybody else, they're sick. They're mm-hmm. sick. They've probably been raised in an environment. A lot of them are unemployed or have had depression. You know, the guy who organized this meeting, uh, already his, I don't know if you all heard the news, but he, he got out basically making fun of the woman who got killed, uh, got hit by the car, and was saying she needed getting killed, and called her a lot of really nasty names. Yeah, I saw yeah. something like I I did see something. I guess that came out today, I suppose. Or, yeah, yeah, and then it turned out he said he was taking Xanax and all this other kind of medication and stuff like that. And uh, you know, these people are living on the edge themselves. This is not a, a a mentally sane way to look at kind of things. These are people who are broken in some way, just like ISIS. It's not, yeah. you know, that's the thing they have in common. They have a mentally broken way. It's so self-serving. It's so uh, it is a very uh, in, insecure way of looking at the world. Everybody's out to get us. We got to take. We better hurry up and get guns and arms. I mean, there's an arrogance and an insecurity both present. Yeah, and, and the it, arrogance usually unveils it. And and, and you know, and, you know, some pl- some people that join Antifa, they might be the same way. It's just you're dealing with extremism on both sides and everybody else is sitting here in the middle, just like, what do we do? What do we, or, you know, some people just want to join up and then some people are just back away. Well, I don't want to give Antifa a pass because I yeah. don't know enough about them. Uh, you know, if they are just confronting the people who want to proactively want to change our world for their own personal benefit to the, to the uh, sacrifice of others, I can empathize if someone is trying to stop them, even if I think they may go too far and not use legal means for it. I mean, I personally believe that the ways of Jesus and the ways of Gandhi and Martin Luther King is the only way to make anything lasting good happen. Agreed. It's not. In fact, I would even go further to say it's a spiritual problem. Yeah. But that's the only lasting way to do it. It's not to, you know, meet fire with fire, even though while we say this, we still have police whose job is to use coercive force when that's the only thing that will do. But... I don't know enough of Antifa has their own agenda to progress, you know, to push on the rest of society what some small sliver of people it is for their advantage. So I don't know if it's apples to apples. 
mm-hmm. but it may be, you know, I don't know. But I, but I do know people who are initiators of wanting to change the world for their own personal benefit to the detriment of others, then I can understand when people try to stop them, particularly when these guys have a track record of millions of people dying in their wake. Right. That may cause some people to take a little bit more action than what you might otherwise sit on the sidelines for. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Future. Um, we're going to have to end this segment, but before I let you go, tell everybody where they can find your uh, your blog posts now. Okay. Okay. It's uh, twospiesreport.wordpress.com. And that's T W O. Yeah. Uh huh. T W O S P I E S report. Dot wordpress.com. Excellent. And, um, you know, read anything else on there, leave a comment. You can flame me. I don't care. There's other people doing it right now. So, um, but I'd love to, you know, get comments and what everyone else is thinking is these things should cause us to reflect the way you did, uh, Adam, to, to actually think about your position about statues. What do they mean? What, you know, what is the role of history? What is the right way to do these things? That's where we can get something constructive out of it. Right. But this is not going away because we have, in fact, I'll just say in closing that the the people who were the organizers of these meetings, it turned out a week or two prior to that, they were the people I was writing about and already finishing their biographies in my current book volume that I'm wrapping up because of their connection to Vladimir Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church. The, 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 these white nationalist, white supremacist movements are being funded by the Russian government and the Russian Orthodox Church. They're being coddled. They're being brought over. They're, they're coalescing other groups throughout Europe, uh, particularly in Hungary, but in all over Europe, uh, to do these same kind of activities. And so this is not going to go away. But it has expanded. It's not even a nationalist problem. It's, it's an international cartel and people are going to have to stand up and decide whose side they're on. And uh, I would certainly like, if enough people got out, there wouldn't have to be any kind of forcible coercion. If enough people would just show up and make a stand. You know, if one guy can stop a tank in Tiananmen Square or a, or a bunch of them, just think what all of us could do yeah. when people are threatening, a, you know, the rest of us in society. But the more Great. people that show up, the less likely violence will be. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Mike, and uh, or Dr. Future. And uh, guys, we will be, uh, we're going to continue the show. We're going to get out of the realm of politics and uh, talk about some weird stuff with uh, Tom Ross and Jenny Ashford from the 13 O'Clock podcast. And we'll be back on Good Spirit. Well, I want, I want everybody to survive that uh, eclipse coming up too, okay? Because yeah. it may all be over if we all die tomorrow talking about weird stuff. So Yeah, this might be posted <laughs> after the eclipse. So you, it might not get posted. Happy eclipse viewing, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mike. Well, stay on the line for us. And, uh, guys, we'll be right back. On the way to Roswell and back, Rob and I was a rather long 
road trip. Yeah, twenty something hours. Yeah, yeah, back and there and back. Right. So we decided, you know, we listened to some music a little bit, but we decided, well, we're going to listen to some podcasts. And we ended up listening to one podcast um, in particular, and that is the 13 O'Clock Podcast. And if you guys have not heard these guys, this is uh, Jenny Ashford and Tom Ross. It is an awesome show. They talk about all kinds of, of topics from poltergeists, ghosts, um, true crime stuff. Uh, it's some really r- weird topics. Um, right now, they're kind of covering all these stuff about the haunt, a, a haunting episodes, which are just damned entertaining. It's some <laughs> of my favorite. And these guys are really funny and really informative. And I really want to welcome them back, both back to the show, Jenny uh, Ashford and Tom Ross. Guys, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Hey, thanks for having us back on. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it slowly has become one of my favorite podcasts. Like, I, I, I start, I start Jones, and if I don't see it in my um, podcast feed on Tuesdays, <laughs> we're starting to do something new too. We're also including movie retrospectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just started doing that. Yeah, and everybody seems to love them. We're we're gaining probably like 10, 15 new yeah, subscribers. Yeah, I'm just putting on those I'm just putting on the YouTube channel. Like we just started doing. We just kind of picked movies that we liked, usually mm-hmm. ones we grew up with, you know, mostly horror and sci-fi. <laughs> and we just kind of talk about them for yeah, how anywhere they, from half an hour to an hour. Yeah, how they impacted us, uh, how audiences reacted at the time cuz you know, I'll watch a movie review, you know. And maybe uh, this guy who's doing the review, he's doing doing a really great review. You know, he knows all the details behind the scenes. But he's 24 years old, and he's reviewing a movie that 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 was shown in the theaters in 1981. Mm-hmm. And they'll say things like, "I don't know what the audience is, how they reacted to it at the time back in 1981." Well, shit, I was probably in the theater. Right. Back right. In 1981. <laughs> So I can help put some of these really classic movies, you know, like Predator 1, you know, and Aliens, you know, like Alien 2, you know. I can put those in perspective of what they were like to see in those days because, you know, a big part of it is what, you know, the, the uh, what we had access to back then was very different. So it was, it was I guess you could say it was easier to impress us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Seems like young, younger people today, they're just totally immune to any kind of imagery. Right, show, right. You can show me anything, and they just don't react to it. Well, it's 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 YouTube and uh, just the internet in general. I think has spoiled a lot of people, and plus, you know, the CGI that's out there in movies. It just it just kind of makes things look cartoonish. I mean, some of it's good, and some of it's not. But th- there's definitely something to be said for some of these. I guess now we have to say older movies that kind of relied on kind of like the more um, practical special effects. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I definitely think it's harder for those to age because if you do really good practical effects, then they will never look out of date. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's a real thing. That was a real thing that somebody built. And yeah, what it, what it was like back then, you know, in 1981, you know, you're maybe <laughs> 13 years old and you're sitting in a movie theater, you know, and uh, you're, you're you're being told a scary story, but you're not really sure what the state of the art is. So you don't really know what it is they can show you. And it goes, yeah, for all, you know, you know, they're going to, they're going to show you something that's really scary. You know, some of the best stuff was never, was actually not showing it. 
things wow. things being implied in a in a in a movie, like oh, yeah. like in the like in the Exorcist, the whole thing about the uh, the director that gets his head turned completely around, and but they ne- you never see this happen. It's just all described, something right. like that, you know. Yeah. And that's way creepier, I think, because mm-hmm. you can imagine it, right? You know? Imagine mm-hmm. you a background like that, but then you go to see John Carpenter's The Thing, and you're seeing. It's extremely graphic. You know what I mean? Like a, a guy's head falling off, sprouting spider legs, yeah. and then away, you know? Right, right. When I saw that, man, that was just a life-changing event, you know? Because it was – that was state-of-the-art, and it was – it would blow your mind. <laughs> what movies have you reviewed? So far, we have done – let's see. what did, We did Logan's Run. The Thing. Mm. We did The Thing. We did Legend of Hell House the and Hunger. The Hunger. Yeah. And those, yeah, those are the first four that we yeah. did. We have a huge list of like a hundred something movies, right? And people are requesting ones that they want us to do too. So it's going to take us a really long time. Again. I have <laughs> never, I have never seen The Hunger, but apparently, isn't that David Bowie? It yeah. does. And yeah. I think wasn't that written by Whitley Strieber? It was yeah. indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was the original goth chick flick, man. It was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still my favorite vampire. Movie. Oh yeah, that was that was uh, Interview with a Vampire before Interview with a Vampire, <laughs> and it was cooler than the really cool. The vampire, yeah, I thought. had Bauhaus was in it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah it was really. Cool. Yeah, yeah. They're in like the opening club scene. It was a very huh. cool. It's still a cool movie. I think it holds up really well. Yeah, Came it looks really good. Yeah. Hey, the next one that's gonna that we're gonna do is Escape from New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just bought it on. He just bought it on Blu-ray, like the special. <laughs> Yeah, we just watched the, it last night. So. Yeah, I just bought the collector's Blu-ray. <laughs> nice. It, it's in, it comes in what's called metal book. It comes in a metal book, like a lithograph, and it opens <laughs> CDs in there. There's so much bonus material in there, man. I, just, I, I, I went, I, you know, I went into Escape from New York World, you know. <laughs> the soundtrack, everything. And it, it just beautiful, because I never got to see that one in the theater. I only yeah. saw that on VHS. To see this thing on my... Big screen, Blu-ray, with the new touched-up. Uh, it just it does look man, really nice. it looks the fantastic. Really nice. yeah. I'll, I'll 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 tell you my favorite line from that movie is when he uh, gets on, he gets on, like to the top of the skyscraper and he's radioing back in. He says that was easy, just like Leningrad. That's my favorite line of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Call me Snake. <laughs> my favorite line is when they uh, they bring him off the bus and they take him to the central prisoner processing, you know, and, uh, what's his name? Hawk. Yeah. Commander Hawk brings him in and he goes, a plane just went down. You know, the, it was the, the, it was the president's plane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And snake goes, president, president of what? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, president of what? <laughs> <laughs> what about, what, what about escape from LA? What about that one? I hated it. <laughs> He's gonna buy it anyway. I'm gonna buy it anyway, but it was like a parody of the first one. Mm-hmm. Even just doesn't yeah. John Carpenter says that he thinks that that is a way better movie yeah, than Escape I'm from New York, and I'm like, on. you are yeah, high. Yeah. Hi. All right. So, so basically, what Carpenter's telling me is that all the movies that you love, like The Thing, They Live, uh, Escape from all New York, good movies. yeah. <laughs> All those really good. Those were just accidents. The ones that he really meant to do were were like Escape, Escape from, from L.A. with the green screen surfing yeah. and all that. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Peter Fonda. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, let's go. Let's go surfing, man. 
Republican would not serve. I just can't, can't wrap my mind around We see that. the problem, now we're getting into movie review topics and everything. The problem with the movie <laughs> is that at the end of Escape from New York, Hawk says, you know, Snake, you know, me and you are a pretty good team. I got a job for you, you know. Think about it while you're rested, you know. And uh, then... The sequel to Escape from New York is supposed to be done just a few years after. So that should have come out around 83, maybe 84. And it should have been a totally unrelated mission. But instead, in Escape from L.A., they do the exact same mission. It just happens to be that the island, the prison island, is now Los Angeles. Yeah, wasn't it? It's not the president. It's the president's daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that. It's the same story. So it's more of a (laughs) reboot. And yeah. it's kind of a, a much suckier reboot. Yeah, and it's like a it's like a parody of yeah, it is. Escape from New York. Well, well here, here's a, here's another movie uh, associated with John Carpenter. We've actually talked about this on another show. Uh, was uh, Halloween three? Yeah, I didn't see it. That was season of the witch. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. You saw season of the witch? I did. So with the masks. Oh, that one. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> sil- the silver shamrock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked about and and yeah. you know, I'm not saying that it's good to like kill children in real life, obviously. Yeah. Not. <laughs> I like when horror movies will do that. I saw and I feel that. like in the eighties they did that a lot. Yeah. They don't really do that much anymore. I saw that one I saw that one new when I was a kid mm-hmm. and uh, on HBO. That's right. Yeah, I remember, yeah, remember HBO? HBO? That's yeah. gone now, I think. No, it's not. There's tons Is of it still around? Yeah. Okay. I don't well. know. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, television's like for old people. Even cable. <laughs> I'm not that old. Well, HBO's no. going strong because of Game of Thrones, essentially. Yep. So. Well, yeah. Yeah. So that's still around. That's right. that's the whole reason. <laughs> <laughs> They're all still around. They're all still around? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More than one of them. Now there's like HBO 18. No shit. <laughs> HBO, they, they have little niche. I don't know anything about that. I know. Yeah, I know. That. <laughs> no, but I like that movie. I like that movie. That movie, that, that movie kind of scared me when I was a kid. It's very polarizing because yeah. it doesn't have anything. But like, you it know. Has right. nothing to do with the other well, one. John Carpenter, that was his original plan was like every Halloween he's going to put out a different movie. But it was like an anthology. It was supposed to be like a different story every Halloween. It wasn't supposed to be yeah. Michael Myers again. And here's Michael Myers. Well, again. yeah. Yeah, Michael yeah Myers. It, it was a failed attempt. Like it didn't quite like. Yeah come off the ground yeah but that that's partic- weird but it's you know yeah it was that, a weird concept yeah but that particular movie part three was a good standalone mm-hmm. yeah you know, it could just stand on its own yeah it's like a, it was like i think we're just mad because it was called halloween three yeah well, but, well because because it's just it's just so weird you know you, you got the whole uh the the whole like stone from stonehenge that's being used to to kill to to kill people and uh, the guy that's made his like army of clockwork androids and it's just it's just so much in it that just, I know, it's just so many bizarre ideas like one area right right exactly <laughs> well in the days it was just kind of up there with Videodrome and it was mm-hmm. like, sitting right there with uh, what is another one that was kind of like that scanners mm-hmm. yeah they were all kind of in the same gestalt like yeah and, I guess and, so. and the brood. Yeah, the oh, brood. I, I liked the brood. brood. I did too. Yeah, all the the uh, the Cronenberg movies. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the brood as much. I don't know if that's, but the uh, Videodrome and um, and uh, Scanners is both Cronenberg, which is yep. some really good stuff. 
Let's get into some of the paranormal stuff that you guys talk about on the show. Um, you guys are really into this. I know we've had Jenny, we've we've had you on talk about poltergeist. Tom, we talked about your case, uh, the Mammoth Mountain case, with you the first time we had y'all on. Yeah, and uh, I just want to get some of your ideas about a few of the topics. And one of the a couple of people that come up all the time, or at least some of like your earlier shows, were Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah, and I'd love to get kind of like your your thoughts on them because you know I have my own kind of personal opinion on them, which I think is pretty close to you guys. But I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about them. Yeah, Ed and Lorraine. Hmm. Go ahead, Jenny. I kind of feel like I, you know, I don't want to say anything about anything <laughs> bad about Lorraine because she's still alive and she's a very old lady and she nice seems lady, like a yeah. very nice lady. Yeah. Sure. Um, but I do feel like their whole shtick, particularly Ed Warren's whole shtick, was to make as much money off cases as possible. Yeah, whether they were real or not. Right, because I definitely feel like there is some evidence to suggest that they kind of invited themselves along on a lot of cases and then told the people involved, hey, we could make a lot of money off this if we write a book about it or or, and then there'll be a movie or whatever. And also, they kind of attached their names to a lot of cases that they weren't really involved in. Yeah, they just showed up one day, they were kicked off the scene, and then they'd go out and write a book about their involvement and how they solved that case. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the whole thing with, like, The Conjuring 2, yeah. with them saying, I mean, they built the whole story, which was based on the Enfield Poltergeist mm-hmm. case. They right. built the whole movie around the conceit that Ed and Lorraine Warren were, like, the main characters on that investigation. Yeah, they were only there a day. Yeah, which is really, really not true. Yeah, yeah. only day. When and I then, found out that The Conjuring 2 was going to be about infield, I was like, the Warrens had nothing to do with that. <laughs> it really didn't. Yeah, yeah, they turned up uninvited one day, and that's pretty much it. And that and yeah. that was a long case. That went on like 18 months or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 18 months. That was Guy Lyon play friend <laughs> Morris Gross that, that did yeah. all that work. And, you know, they just showed up, and they checked things out, and then they were basically kind of my understanding, they were dismissed from the case. They were not invited back. Yeah. They, they invited themselves. And then uh, when questioned about it right after, uh, right after they you know, made their little visit, when, when the media questioned them about it originally, uh, Ed said there was nothing to it, that it was a hoax. Because they were yeah. involved in it. I think that's right. kind of what it was. Then later on, they go, oh, no, that was a real thing. You because know, we, we kind of talk about this a lot. I'm like, I'm not really sure if they actually were true believers in the sense that they really genuinely thought that they were helping people yeah or if it was a, or if it was just a really cynical kind of cash grab type of thing it oh, sounds like to me that lorraine was a true believer or that, is still a true believer but that ed kind of was like uh i believe this kind of but i can see the money making potential in it that's yeah, that's pretty much right. Because she does de- seem like a genuinely, you know, like she really does think she's helping people and stuff like that. I didn't really get that vibe so much from him. They were involved in some real cases. Just because they were involved in it doesn't mean that it was. Yeah, you can't right. like just right. just because they were on it. But, but they would go also go on bad cases that were hoaxes, and then they turn around and says, "Oh no, this is the real thing," and they try to profit on it. You know, well, I mean, he claimed to have fought a werewolf. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
know, they read a whole book. Of well, yeah. one case in particular, the haunting in Connecticut case, and of course, there's been the a haunting, which was like the first episode of a haunting ever was, I think, the haunting in Connecticut, and I remember watching that about ten, fifteen years ago, being pretty impressed by it. Uh, but when you really start to kind of look at that case a little bit, even the guy that uh, I guess ghost wrote, no pun intended. Uh, the book for them even said that there was some shenanigans going on, some stuff that wasn't even true. Yeah, I think Ray Garten was the one that wrote the book that that was based on. Because I think the book was called In a Dark Place, if I'm remembering correctly. And Correct. Ray Garten yeah. out, yeah, he came out and said on record later on that not only he didn't really meet any of the family members, he just kind of got their stories like secondhand. And then he said that a lot of their stories kind of contradicted each other. And he said when he approached Ed Warren about it, that Ed Warren said, well, the family's crazy. Just you can't figure something out. Then just make something up and just make it scary. That's that was the uh, uh, the funeral home family, right? Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you, the paranormal witness. Yeah, because they were on both. Was, was pretty damn good. They were on both uh, versions. Although I they think were on the, both shows, weren't they? And I, yeah, and I, I, I like, haven't seen the Paranormal Witness one. Yeah, they were. The, yeah. yeah, they were on there too. So they kind of made the rounds. And the haunting version of that story is also good. Yeah. Well, in yeah. the Paranormal Witness one, do they actually talk to the older son? Because you never hear anything about from him in the in the haunting one. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, no, I don't think they were talking. He was either sick or dead by the time that. that huh. Yeah, he died. Um, because he had uh, leukemia or whatever, Hodgkin's lymphoma or whatever it was. Yeah. It went into remission, yeah. but then it came back. I think he might have died in, oh God, I want to say 2004, but uh, don't quote me on that. You know, he, it came back later. He died later. You know, you always got to go back to the source material and the oldest stuff. And, you know, we're anxious. We're like Methuselahs. I remember, <laughs> I remember when, that, when that case was first presented to me. This was, it was, it was back like on. Well, was it wasn't Morton Downing Jr. It wasn't. Oh, Bravo. they were. Yeah, they were on it one was, of those. Who, was who it was Sally Jesse Raphael? Yeah, Sally Jesse, or who was the white-haired guy? Phil Donahue, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think I think that family was on both of those shows, and probably Geraldo. I, they all kind of conflate together, but you could probably find the Snedeker family on YouTube. Yeah, on I've shows. seen clips of it back in the eighties. And the story they're telling then doesn't really match up with the story. As portrayed, say in the newer versions, right? Not right. Really close. Yeah, I I know that Carmen Reed. I know I think she lives here in Tennessee somewhere. Yeah, because I think later she went on to become. I don't know if she's like a psychic or some kind of healer or something or other. Or yeah, and there was one. There's one show that was really cool where she's sitting there. Uh, the Snedekers are telling their version of the story, and people in the audience lived. Some of the audience members, there was like twenty of them. They lived on the same block as they did. Yeah, yeah. And and they're one of them is standing up. She's got a whole notepad with times of when they. She came prepared. She came totally prepared <laughs> notes about what they said and when. And they were the, the, the neighbors were outraged over it. They were convinced that the whole thing was a hoax, and that. I, I wonder old, why. Did they think their property values are going to go down or something? I don't know. Maybe. In the it 80s, might have been. I don't know what it was. They were furious about the whole thing. And they I just think, thought well, they were liars. They, well, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of contention, too, because I think later on, Carmen, for, real, for sure, claimed that 
oh, well, we didn't know that the house used to be a funeral home. And the person that rented them the house was like, that's right. crap. I told them that right. it was a funeral home. And he's like, everybody in the neighborhood knew that it used to be a funeral home. Right. So yeah, as it's portrayed in haunting in in the uh, in the in the haunting series, which is the only one that I've seen, as it's portrayed there, they go downstairs and then there's all this mortuary equipment. They're like, "What's that doing here?" You know. So like this this I tell you one thing about that um, episode was just like I love the part where she's she's mopping the floor and the the mop water starts turning to blood. Yeah, but man, right. I would be out of there. Yeah. yeah, like I would not be sticking around. But like, well, she's just like, mm, "That's interesting. Let me keep going." It's, it's <laughs> yeah. like the Eddie Murphy joke, you know? The <laughs> oh, that's peculiar. If you, if you go back and you listen to the early interviews of the eighties, uh, mostly what they're reporting is like very intense, like sexual assaults. Yeah, on the right. They did, didn't they? And yeah, I don't think they really all that vanished. Snedeker said that she was being sodomized as she was running down the street, running away from this thing. This thing was. Yeah, and they did not. (laughs) (laughs) They should have put that in Paranormal Witness. I'm surprised. Man, how do you film a scene like that? A person running down the street. Well, sodomized as you go by an invisible weenus. How the, hell, how the hell do you actually portray that to an audience that that's happening? Like a, like a glass butt plug or something? <laughs> well, so, okay, there was another case, which you guys haven't, you guys haven't talked about on the show as much. I can't remember the name of it. But there was another family that the Warrens also helped that made those same claims. Yeah. That's right. I think that was the Smurl family. Smurl family. Yes. Thank you. That was, yeah, that, that was a similar kind of thing where there was a lot of that, um, getting raped by ghosts going on back yeah. in the eighties. And well, it was a common getting, pastime. I guess you know. so. Or as Tom said on the episode, getting raped by pig demons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It seems like there was a lot going on too. And I think that was Amityville horror influence yeah. because of right. that. Yeah saw something that walked around like a pig and so now suddenly everybody's like yeah yeah that's what yeah, my, the pigs. that's yeah. what my ghost rapist looked like too it looked like a pig walking around on two legs yeah daytime television stuff now it was, it was yeah it was the youtube of the day well you know there's like there's like a feedback loop here between yeah. actual cases hollywood and back to actual cases yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it just it, it just keeps going. So Amityville is the other case that I want to discuss because this one particularly interests me cuz I'm not as convinced as you guys are that it was a complete hoax. I think there was a lot of it that is pretty suspicious and weird about it, but I'm not I'm not so convinced that it was completely a hoax cuz you do have um well, two of the boys, I mean, like Daniel and Christopher, that have come out and said that things did happen there, and they put the blame squarely on George Lutz. That's yeah, right. his, yeah. His, he was into demonology. Yeah. That's, yeah, the yeah. son did say that, didn't he? Yeah, we, I, yeah, we saw that documentary. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. black magic, I, I wouldn't believe it. Because yeah, he hated I don't know his stepdad. He did, yeah. There right. Was a, there was a lot of... Yeah. Uh, I kind of am a... I don't know if... Um, I don't know if it was like a total hoax. Maybe there was some minor poltergeist activity going on there. They just kind of blew it out of proportion. I'm not really sure. It can all be traced back to a lawyer trying to. True. Uh, 
Well, see, that's that's what I wonder whether or not there actually were things that happened in that house, but it wasn't. I mean, we know the Jay Anson book is almost complete fiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is. But you got to wonder if there was something that happened where it's kind of more of these. I hate to say run of the mill, but not as fantastical as what was right. later portrayed. So. You know, like the, the like, like there. I think you guys speculate, or I heard someone speculate that George Lust Lutz actually bought the house because he knew that was where the murders took place. Well, yeah, that's what the lawyer put him up to, evidently. Yeah, there, there's there's a backstory to the whole thing. Uh, what was the guy's name who actually did the shooting? What was his name again? That's all. Ronnie DeFeo. Yeah. The more you know about these cases, the less you know because they all start to kind of blur together. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. They're all, they're all kind of samey. All right. Uh, something did happen in there. DeFeo murdered his family in there. DeFeo was a junkie, uh, dumb, and about half crazy. May have been something going on with his sister also. Uh, yeah, I think there was a murder-suicide thing going on because I think him and the sister did it together. Yeah, and there, and he chickened out on the suicide pact. Yeah, it could have been something like that. All right, something suspicious happened. I, I don't think there, there's a chance that he didn't do this alone. Uh, now, DeFeo's lawyer thought that uh, he could make a good book of, from it. And if I remember correctly... Uh, Jenny, you, you can correct me. Um, DeFeo's lawyer thought that he could raise money by selling a book and that the money could be used for DeFeo's defense also. Isn't that how And that I think he was also trying to bolster an insanity defense. An insanity defense. By right. saying essentially that the house was now, haunted or possessed and that's yeah. what made him do now, it. There was, in some way, the Lutz family was connected with this lawyer. And mm-hmm. I don't remember. Exactly how. Yeah, I'm not and sure they, how they, they met each other. Colluded. All right. Now Russia was not involved, but there was collusion. <laughs> <All right. laughs> there was collusion about getting the Lutzes in there and having them run early uh, with a ghost story. Here's the whole problem, though, with the Amityville case: the case as described by the witnesses and the case as described by the books does not fit any known pattern reported in parapsychology so it's not poltergeist it doesn't seem to be haunting so what would it be demonic haunting yeah i uh, think that's demonic, what they're for that's a stretch yeah that, that's a big stretch and, and then also the fact that nothing happened after nothing like happened. that house is still there people live in that oh. house yeah yeah and no witnesses outside the family uh, nothing turned anything up. They had a famous on TV um, t- live televised seance there and everything. It was a media circus. Yeah. And it, it made people money. They made a lot of money on that. Well, hell, um, they've made like 17 right. Amityville movies. Yeah. Now, that Amityville case and the media circus that surrounded it was the motivating force to cause other media circuses with false cases. Right. There- People were shooting for that again, but Amityville was a Amityville was basically a one-time event. I don't think anything ever really topped it in, in, in dollar value. What, what do you think of that picture of the kid in the in the uh, doorway? 
That was that was paranormal investigators uh, linked with the Warrens, I believe. They yeah. went there on their own without anybody in that house, and they came back with that photo. That's a little kid that they brought with them, poking his head around the corner. Hmm. Yeah. Probably. Or a photo of a little kid's head taped to the back of that door and bent yeah. around. You yeah. can take a photo of a photo, and in, in a 2D situation like that, it'll look creepy. It but is a creepy picture. It's a creepy picture. But it's kind of a low quality. The low quality and, and uh, not verified. It was taken in the house, but it wasn't, ta- you know. Yeah, I think, well, the Warrens went there after the Lutzes had left. Yeah. And I think they went there at the behest of, like, I think, I think it was, like, a local news news station that yeah. wanted to do, like, a scary story or something yeah. like that. and wanted to do a follow-up on it, so they kind of invited the to go along so i don't know how much of an yeah. investigation they did more as more of it was like kind of just like a media now well but well sorry go on for people that don't listen to our show we may sound like we're real real stick in the muds you know what i mean that we don't that we don't believe in paranormal. <laughs> that's not true we right. i've seen paranormal so is jenny right uh it's just that uh the media latches on to uh basically they have a tendency to latch on to very sensational cases yeah yeah and it's complete sensationalism i I've, I've heard other things too like jody the pig uh people have tried to explain that away as that might have been a cat yeah like a neighbor's cat that would sit there on the on the uh on the windowsill um I, i've heard that before i think what would happen is when when they were living in the house real events would happen to them which would inspire them to come up with a a fictionalized account of something that really happened. Mm -hmm. So you, you're startled by a cat that's sitting on the windowsill. Uh, you say, Oh man, that's, that would be even better if that was an evil pig sitting out there. (laughs) (laughs) So so you tell people that that's, I should tell you, they were trumping up a story to help sell the book for this Lord. Yeah. Yeah. When I was a little kid, they got money. They got $180,000, wasn't it? I think it was $300,000. dollars to sell the movie rights to this. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, like I said, they tend to latch on to th- – the media will latch on to things that are sensational. And sensational cases of the paranormal tend to be hoaxes. But there are real paranormal cases out there. Right. They're just that impressive. Like like Enfield. I mean, Enfield was a par- was a real case. Now, there's some elements that I think we've discussed before that yeah. – that might be like, you know, there's that weird picture of Janet yeah. flying across the room, but yeah, that could yeah. have been spasms. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, all in all, the thing about Enfield is that, and every time they fictionalized it, both in Conjuring 2 and to a lesser extent in the uh, BBC, the miniseries that they made. That was which was, which was truer to actually what happened in some ways. Other than yeah. the third part, which went a little bit off the rails. Right, I right. Um, but it pretty much stuck to the story. I mean, if you read the book, um, you know, Guy Lyon Plaver's book, that he yeah. was there the whole time, it's very dry. It's very yeah. matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, he's basically like, this time on this day, saw a Lego fly right. across the room, stuff like that. It was So he didn't really hype it up in any way. Yeah, and if you read the book... Which I think makes it scarier. Yeah, if you read the book reviews of that book, you have people giving it one and two stars. They're going, boy, this is boring. <laughs> this is boring. Oh, that's not scary. So what... <laughs> Alan, it's easy to say when yeah. you weren't there in the in, in the yeah it'd be in, scary in the house. If you, were there. you know what I mean? If you were there in the house and you saw a Lego brick jump up and fly across the room and nobody nobody touched it, that's going to freak you out. But I, you see, that's not going to freak you out in a movie theater. 
No, that's no. not going to freak you out in a horror novel. It's so not. People, it's not sexy enough. Not sexy right. enough. So right. people buy accounts. We we have the same problem, you know, when we, we with with uh, Rochdale Poltergeist and uh, Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist. People, well, it's not scary. No, it's scary because that's real. You know, yeah. <laughs> what makes it scary is that if you were there and that really happened. Don't buy these this kind of book expecting it to be horror fiction. Well, what I what I want to know mainly in the infill case now, I mean, a lot of it can be explained the way that your case went, Tom, where you, I mean, you made the realization that it was you doing it, or a part of me. I won't. I don't want to take full responsibility. Gotcha. It wasn't the conscious mind. It's like the unconscious mind, right? Like the id. Yeah. The id. Yeah. And you know, it's whatever part of your mind controls the characters in your dreams. That's what does it. Well, yeah. there are things in your dreams that try to hurt you, so you know that's kind of scary. Imagine if the th- imagine if a certain okay, imagine if the part of your brain that controls characters in your dreams, imagine if that had the power to move objects. Yeah, that's okay. actually a pretty good analogy. I think that's the best way I can describe <laughs> it. How- I've had dreams where guys ran up on me with an axe and hit me dead in the chest with an axe. Yeah. What would happen if I'm awake and during a poltergeist event and I see an axe come at me and hit me in the chest and it does kill me? It's possible. Yeah. I yeah. saw physical objects move and me, my uh, my aunt, my uncle, the neighbors came over and saw it. You know, we, we weren't brave enough to call the police. You know, this is the early 80s. You know, And they you, couldn't you, have done anything. Yeah, anyway. they couldn't do anything. They called the cops in the Enfield case and the cops were like, yeah, chair yeah, moved. Yeah, chair flipped over. Well, the, the, one, the one aspect of Enfield that I, that to me is a mystery is how did she make that voice? Because, yeah. and how did she know the details of that guy's death in the house? What if what if there's a certain part of your mind that is not physical, of course, and then you have your brain, and then you have your memories that are stored in your brain and all the processes inside of your brain. What if it's just like um, there, there's a quantum field of particles around your brain that you call your soul or your mind? Um, what's the name of that physicist of the quantum soul theory? Stuart Hameroff. Stuart Hameroff. Well, what if there's a certain part of you that is basically happening at a quantum level? All right, like a like a cloud of interconnected, extremely small, even smaller than subatomic particles. Well, those things might be able to interact with the environment in ways that you couldn't imagine. Maybe they can access the past. Maybe they can access the future. Maybe they can access the history of what happened in a certain location. So that could describe premonitions. Uh, what, what's in a premonitions? Uh, what a psychic ability? Yeah, like telepathy. You know, telepathy that, that might even describe what? What do you call that when you touch something and you read? Read what? What's that called? Psychometry. Psychometry, right? All that. So maybe she, maybe just a part of her. Maybe she kind of tapped into tapped into the past and, and saw what had happened there. Yeah. And, then, and the subconscious realm did it. You know, it's possible, or, or it could have been a combination where there could have been. I mean. I, I kind of am a kind of still a firm believer in the, the that there could be a spirit there, a possibility. Um, I just that's the one part of it, it, like most of the case when I really looked it, look on it, it doesn't seem too strange to me 
after really looking at it, but that's that there's always that one thing in some of these cases that it's like, well, wait a minute, that's a little that can't that's not as explainable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you put maybe it's something maybe it's better than we actually imagine. When you pop a videotape into something, all right? You see an image on the screen of somebody that you recorded. It's like looking at the past, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, what happens if you're doing this at a quantum level where you're accessing who used to live in the house in the past? Not only do you have an awareness of that person, but you kind of, in a way, reanimate an, a, a psychic image or a ghostly image of that person in the house, and it's playing back for you. And maybe it can be even be interactive. Yeah. yeah. You're kind of, a, a recording on the environment. Yeah, yeah and, like the stone tape theory. Like a stone mm-hmm. where you're coming back and, and, and this thing's like a, a 3D semi-visible or invisible hologram. And not only is it just an image, but its mind might come back where its personality comes back. Another thing that was compelling, too, was the fact that they recorded dogs barking in the house when there were no dogs. And apparently uh, the old man was surrounded by dogs. Like he had a bunch of dogs in the house when he lived there. Thought yeah. that was interesting too. Yeah. Right. And just because you're seeing these dogs or these ghosts doesn't necessarily mean that is the ghost of that guy. It may be a recreation of that guy, not the yeah. original. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 A simulation of it. Yeah. It's interesting stuff, man. We could tap into some of this power. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, well, it's discussed in Star Wars, really. Yeah. <laughs> And they didn't, you know, George Lucas didn't invent all that stuff. We'll, we'll get to Star Wars. <laughs> I'm going to turn the show over to Rob for a little bit, talk about Star Wars. Let's talk about some true crime stuff. Jenny, uh, this, I mean, I know you're working on your, your current book, which we're going to have you on for that, um, about some of the true crimes, some of the early, some of the cases from the early 20th century. But uh, one of these cases is one that, you know, you hear in the whole ghost hunting community is very popular, the Velisca Axe Murder House. Yeah. But you are the first person that I've um, run across that has actually said that this could have actually not, this could have actually been a serial killer. This could have actually been someone that, that there were other axe murderers that happened around that area in the same time. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting thing that I came across because when I was researching the Velisca Axe Murders, I came across, like, I'm not the first person to think of that, but it does seem like there were an unusual amount of axe murders in that area, like, over about a four-year period. And some of the aspects of the Velisca axe murder case showed up in some of these other axe murder cases as well. And it kind of seems like it might have been the same person. There's really no... Uh, you know, there's no proof of it, but it, it really does seem like, because I mean, honestly, other than, um, the little preacher that was kind of the main suspect, but who was eventually arrested, but he was eventually acquitted. Um, there was really no motive for any of these. Nothing was taken from the house. No one, um, particularly hated them or anything like that. And it just seemed like such a strange thing to just walk into someone's house, ax everyone to death, including children. Yeah. 
then kind of hang out in the house for a little while and then just go on your merry way. Like, so I feel like it almost had to be a serial killer because otherwise, why would a random person just do that just for no reason? It seems like it would have to be some kind of serial killer motive where they were getting some kind of charge out of it. What were some, what were the other cases that were around the same time? Um, there were, there were like a bunch of different ones. There were, there was actually one in Colorado Springs, which I believe, uh, was also six people. Hmm. There were a couple in, uh, I think there, there was another one in Kansas and there were a couple out in the Pacific Northwest. I think there was one in Oregon and stuff like that. They're not sure if that was the same person, but there was kind of a thing where, cause you know, in the Velisca case where, um, he hit, you know, the, the person that did it, he hit them all with the backside of the ax and kind of smashed their heads into nothing. Yeah. And, which I didn't know that either. Yeah. And then he went, um, and then he went back and did it like he killed them. And then he farted around in the house for a little while. And then he went back and hit them all again until their, until their, all their heads were obliterated. And then he covered all their heads up with various things that were in the house, like tablecloths or aprons or whatever. And in a couple of the, in Velisca and in a couple of these other cases, he also covered up all the windows and all the mirrors before he left. That's so, weird. that's weird. Yeah. So that was like really one of the creepiest aspects. And I think, and you know, don't, uh, you know, don't quote me on this, but I think there were three other cases around that time period and around that area, Midwestern type area where the same thing happened, where the mirrors were covered up with seats and stuff like that, which to me seems like, and I think when we did the show on the Velisca Axe murders, we kind of thought maybe that was a psychological thing where the person felt so guilty or they didn't want to look at themselves doing that. Or they always had some kind of superstition about seeing themselves in the mirror while they were doing. And that thing is like, remember when you were a kid, and if you were walking around your house at night in the dark, yeah. And if you passed a mirror, you might be kind of averted, have an aversion to looking into that mirror and seeing yourself in the dark. Yeah, might have been something like that. Also, there was a pretty common superstition. It might still be a common superstition, but um, where if someone died in the house, you were supposed to cover the mirrors up because otherwise the mirror would like capture their souls and the souls yeah. would remain there. Yeah, maybe it was something like so. That. Maybe he had some kind of superstition in that way yeah. because it's like an odd thing to hang around the house and do could there yeah. be a could there be a cult or like a religious aspect to this i wonder yeah i wonder it almost seems like i don't know it to me it really seems like the violence of it and just the way the person seemed to hang out in their house that's be that'd be like that's literally hanging out in like a tomb yeah a bunch of dead bodies in the house with you and yeah you're, and you're sleeping in there and eating Ugh. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think he did like hang out in there. Like yeah. I don't I don't know if he ate or in a couple of the cases somebody did hang out in there and eat yeah. in the house like while they were all dead. Yeah, they found a side of bacon. <laughs> Disturbing. Leaning against the wall. Yeah. yeah. Two little girls were dead. Yeah. Now they're not sure. Like the one girl in the Velisca case, like because it was a family, it was the Moore family, and then there were two little girls that were a friend of one of the daughters, mm-hmm. and they were staying over, and. The t- those two little girls, one of them was found kind of scooched down on the bed with her nightgown pulled up and her underwear was underneath the bed. 
So they don't know if there was some kind of rape involved. Rape involved. Um, some, a few of the other axe murder cases did have that, but some of them didn't. Hmm. So I don't really know if it was a sexual motive in that way, or if, um, or if the axe murder itself was kind of a sexual release. I have heard some people say because of that side of bacon that was found leaned up against the wall mm -hmm. that, and I think we mentioned this on yeah. our Velisca mm -hmm. show, that the killer used it as a masturbatory aid. <laughs> nice. Which I, yeah. Was, I was like, wow, I didn't even think of that. But you were just like, no, nah, that's not probably not it. Yeah, he was probably going to take it with him because he was hungry and then he forgot. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know. I thought that was unlikely. I thought he was, I figured he probably was hungry. He was going to take it with him. And then but he then forgot. he realized, well, no, nah, maybe he realized that that was incriminating evidence. You're taking something from the crime scene. Yeah. If they found it on you, they go, hey, we know you got that bacon. That's like some familiar looking yeah. bacon right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was like, there was like one, um, there was one suspect that I think was that I think was there in a couple of these cases. Like the same guy was was around, like could be put in the area of a couple of them. Yeah. Um I do feel like I, I feel like sometimes when people put forward the serial killer theor theory, a lot of people put forward William Blackie Mansfield. But I don't really know if there's enough evidence to say it was him. He did. Uh, he was eventually convicted of killing two of his family members, but he did that for financial gain. Um, so I don't really know. And I think when the Velisca murders happened, I think that he had um, employment records that proved that he was like 400 miles away or something like that. So if it all was one person, I don't really think it was him. Yeah. And, you know, in the Velisca case, I do feel like the the Reverend George Kelly, who was kind of the main suspect at the time, because of the weird incriminating stuff that he said that he later recanted, um, if he was responsible for the Velisca murders, I don't think he was responsible for the other ones. I guess it's possible, but yeah. I don't think he came he even came up as a suspect in any of the other ones. I'm presuming because he wasn't in the area. The yeah. The one uh, also that um, I found really interesting, I had no idea about this, was the was the Atlanta Ripper. Yeah. This, I used to live there, too. I had absolutely no idea about that. Yeah, and I have had several people tell me that, too, because I was actually researching a chapter about the Axeman of New Orleans, who, of course, is a very famous um, axe murderer. And while I was researching that, I think, I came across a mention of the Atlanta Ripper. And I'm like, Atlanta Ripper? I never heard of that. And then I went and started reading about him. There's not a huge amount of information left. I think there's one book that was written about him, and I think that's about it. But it kills me that so much. I mean, you can still look at a lot of the old newspapers from the time and stuff like that that are talking about it. And I'm like, this guy, they think, killed between the most conservative estimate is eight. Most of the you know, more kind of out there things are like up to 30, which was, I mean, even eight is more than they think the actual Jack the Ripper killed. Right. Right. And he tended to kill women in the same way. And the women that he killed weren't even prostitutes. They were just regular working class women that were walking home from work or whatever. And he would just jump out of the bushes, you know, slit their throat, drag them into the bushes. And the fact that they didn't really, I mean, they didn't really do anything about it. You could get away with it back then. 
Yeah, well, and especially mm-hmm. forensics were bad. You know, well, the, yeah, the forensics were bad, and plus it was kind of, you know, it was the black neighborhood. Yeah. And it was, you know, the early 20th century. I mean, it was easy to get away with that all the way up to the 80s. Yeah. Took, yeah, essentially, yeah. It really was, yeah, until they had there's DNA. Stuff, there, there's all kinds of stuff that people don't even know about that was going on in the 70s and 80s. You got to dig. Yeah. But forgotten, you know. I know. Serial that, killers. Yeah, that was, that's there's the thing. There's a lot of missing people that had never been found. Oh, yeah. And you know they went somewhere. And that was the scary thing when I first started researching this true crime book. I mean, not only the Atlanta Ripper case, but it's really alarming how many people. I mean, if you go to, like, the Wikipedia page or something like that, list of unsolved murders from X year, list of missing persons from X year, it's a lot yeah. of people. And it's just, yeah, I know there's a lot of people in the country. There's a lot of people in the world and stuff like that. But it's really scary how much of that goes unreported, goes unsolved. And I had no trouble at all finding hundreds of unsolved cases to put in this book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that next book. Yeah, I'm having a good time writing it. It's pretty grim. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I I have like seven chapters left. I'm almost... I'm almost to the to the yeah. year where I'm doing the cutoff because right. it's going to be in three volumes. So I'm, you know, I'm almost to the cutoff of volume two. So, <laughs> so Tom, let's talk Star Wars for a little bit. I'm going to turn the show over to Rob because he he likes some of your. He was one. He was one to ask you about some of your theories about Star Wars. Yeah, one of the one of the episodes we listened to on our our long journey back from Roswell was uh, the Star Wars episode, which was awesome, by the way. Um, I can tell you've thought a lot about this stuff. I mean, you delved into like the the religious and uh, philosophical stuff that inspired the Jedi's and into all of the kinds of kind of really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, mainly with episode eight coming up this December, the main thing I was curious where you stand on is where do you think uh Ray's origin story is? I have a feeling that, that, that must be Luke Skywalker's daughter. Really? It must be. She's definitely trained as a Jedi. She was trained as a Jedi, you know, they trained those little Jedi younglings, you know. Mm, you think her, that her memory of that was just wiped? Sure, you know, evidently the Jedi in the expanded universe could wipe a person's memory, and that'd be the best way to hide them. Right. She was obviously hidden on another desert planet, similar planet to where Luke grew up, a desert planet, all right? She, her, um, she had a little uh, X-Wing pilot as a doll. Yeah. She also had a helmet, an X-wing helmet that looked a lot like Luke's original helmet. Hmm. Yeah. So he put her there to hide her, to hide her from um, uh, what's his name? Uh, they call. I know who he is. Snoke. Snoke. Yeah. yeah. Snoke. To hide her from Snoke, and you know, because if she's thinking about being a Jedi and thinking little Jedi youngling thoughts, he'll fe- he can feel her through the Force, and he'll send. Uh, yeah, they could find her. Yeah, they'd find her. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, for me, the only thing that uh, throws me off from believing that would be when she gets the lightsaber, it's Obi-Wan talking to her, not Luke. Well, maybe she had t- spoken to Obi-Wan's ghost. Remember? Yeah, it could be. Obi-Wan yeah. comes back as a ghost, a force ghost all the time. Obi-Wan's force ghost may have helped train her. Hmm. Oh, I and, never even thought of that. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> how, how else would she have uh, had skills like the mind trick? And uh, the the lightsaber came to her before it came to uh, uh, Finn. No, no, uh, Kylo. Kylo. Yeah. yeah. So you know, 
And then uh, I've also believed that Finn was a Jedi youngling. I don't think that that's an, a, a mis- I don't think that's an accident that one stormtrooper out of those thousands was able to break his conditioning right at the perfect time to get involved with the rebellion. Because you got to go back to uh, the first Star Wars movie. Uh, well, actually, they all basically say over and over again is that there's no such thing as a coincidence. That the will of the Force causes things to happen. So there are no coincidences. And I I, kind of think that who Finn is is uh, probably Lando Calrissian's son. Hmm. Yeah, that's possible. Because it makes sense that after after the fall of the Empire. All the kids uh, get raised together kind of thing. All the kids get raised together. All the leaders of the rebellion end up in uh, Skywalker's new uh, Force Academy. And probably Obi-Wan's ghost helping. Maybe maybe Yoda's ghost helping. Yeah, to try to rebuild the Jedi Order. But there's a lot of imperfections in in the Jedi way. That goes all the way back to German philosophy of you know Friedrich Nietzsche and Arthur Schopenhauer, and it's it's those two guys are basically reinterpreting Buddhism. You know that's where all that comes from. Is that uh, pure good and pure evil are imbalanced. There has to be a balance. And that's that's what Siddhartha Gautama and the Buddha was talking about. They was talking about the middle path, and that's really what uh, what the new series, the new movies are about about a, a middle path. The gray Jedi, right? But the thing is, is that there's light gray and dark gray. All right, and if you look at Kylo Ren and Snoke, these are dark gray Jedi's. <laughs> Kylo sacrifices his father to show his indifference and, and his ability to be free. Right. He was embracing hatred. He was struggling to, to fight off hatred. Remember, he'd get mad, he'd tear something up, and then he'd calm down real quick. Right. The idea was indifference. See, because once a person achieves a certain level of indifference, they gain power. Uh, you know, a, a, good, a good quote would be, once a person can hand out death to others and can accept his own death when it's handed to him, with equal indifference, then he becomes a true warrior. You understand? Because you're you're now no longer wanting things that are material. Right. Well, and that's I, the whole um, trying to achieve that emotionless, like focused state kind of thing. Seems to be um, not allowing the material world to control you. You control the material world. So, in other words. A guy who controls the material world and is not controlled by materialism, you give him a Ferrari and he destroys the Ferrari to show that the Ferrari is nothing to him. <laughs> he controls the Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> what about the whole Darth Plagueis theory that you have? Oh, it's got to be who that is. That better be who that is. It's got to be who that I'm is. I'm going to be mad if it's not. Yeah, because it looks like he survived a, a mortal wound to his head. So I would think that... Um, uh, what was his name? Darth uh, Plagueis? No, no, uh, Darth Sidious. Mm-hmm. I think Darth Sidious did kill Darth Plagueis, but Darth Plagueis came back from the dead. So that's what you're seeing. If he had the ability to save people, keep people from dying, and save people from death, which are two different things, mm-hmm. he, he could save himself from death, which yeah. would be to come back to life. Which that's all that that goes all throughout horror. You know, that's that's a vampire. Yeah. In a way. Or a zombie. 
And like, we and we don't know what he looks like really. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, because all we have see is the projection. Projection of him. He might not be that size. No, he no, might not I'm, look like that. He no, I'm not. sure he's small. Yeah. If it's Darth Plagueis the Wise, he's probably a little small, skinny, scholarly guy, but he's very wounded and very twisted looking, and he looks like an reanimated corpse, which that makes sense. Yeah. Because you're killed, you cut, pop out as a force ghost, then you repair the material damage or the physical damage to your body and then you possess your body again like demonic possession <laughs> self-possession Re- repossessing your own body you're possessing your own body yeah well, I, I like that idea yeah I like that idea. so i'm just looking at it in the occult perspective i'm just saying i'm gonna be really upset if they had something laying there like that that snoke is darth plague is the wise mm-hmm. and they don't do it you know what i mean because it seems like it has to be that. He has to be drunk. You see, the reason why he was wise is because he's trying to transcend the dark side and the light side. Yeah. Because look at even Kylo Ren even says to Han Solo yeah. that he calls him wise. Right. Well, and whenever they show him, they, you're hearing the ohm from an obi. Oh. Yeah. Which means indifference. Yeah. Indifference, right? Mm. Well, when... Um, when uh, Darth Sidious is talking about his master that he murdered, if you listen in the background while he's telling the story to yeah. Anakin, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it's the same sound. He's right. out there. He's still out there. He's back from the dead. Because why would they even put? And you know, as as crappy as the prequels were, <laughs> I feel like they put that in there for a reason. Actually. The sequels weren't that crappy. The third sequel, number three, was okay. Well, yeah, that one was all right. Yeah. And I've seen one and two re-edited by fans, and they're a lot better without well, Jar Jar yeah. Binks. <laughs> <laughs> There's somebody on YouTube, because yeah. remember we watched somebody on YouTube actually went to the trouble of re-editing yeah. all of the prequels, and they're great. Yeah. I need they're to see so that. Much yeah, the fans are like, oh, yeah, that's the way that movie should have been. That's the way they should have okay, I have a theory on the first three movies, and I want to run this by you, Tom, because it's been shot down by every other Star Wars fan I've ever run it past. (laughs) Now, I think when all nine movies come out, if you were to watch them sequentially, it it would start off really lighthearted and gradually work to episode three, it gets dark, and then it drops back to lighthearted and it works its back way up to, you know gets dark again and then the end of six it's like okay everything's okay again then you know you got these cycles going and i think once all nine are out if you watch them front to back you'd have this emotional kind of ride that makes sense but in their own if you just saw episode one and none of the rest it kind of sucks so are you saying you should watch them episode one two three four and five and six seven eight all that Yes, and, and then I think the emotional kind of vibe, like the, it starts off more playful and goofy and gets kind of progressively darker. Mm-hmm. I think it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it does. But that was by accident. Lucas didn't couldn't do anything on purpose, really. When you advertise, when you when you analyze what he did, when it, when, when he ever when, whenever he did something on purpose, it failed. That's a good point. I mean, he's going to put. He's going to put Indiana Jones in a refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> Lead lined, which apparently prevents prevents him from being baked alive in a nuclear yeah. explosion. And then crystal skulls are ETs. You know, that's not going to work. All right. They, his friends, his wife was saying, don't do that. What are you doing? 
Yeah. You know, well, you know, Roswell and aliens and, and he didn't Raiders. really have, no. and I was kind of sad about that. Well, he because, did that shit on purpose. That yeah. was not an accident. He did that shit on purpose. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing. And I feel like, well, even when he was writing the original, like a new hope and empire strikes mm-hmm. back and stuff like that, he was kind of making it up as he went along because I mean, in the well, first he had movie, a general outline. Yeah. But yeah. in the first movie, they were setting up a romance right. between Luke and Leia, obviously, mm-hmm. but then everybody liked Han Solo better. Right. Like they liked him as a character better. So they said, Oh, well maybe we should hook those two up. Right. You know, so there was a lot of weird stuff and I you know, millions of people have commented on the whole yeah. weird incest thing the, going the, on the, in, the reason, in the first movie. <laughs> Speaking of Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> the, the reason why the prequels are the way that they are is because is because Lucas saw Star Wars as a children's movie. He said it over and over and over again. If you watch the movies, in the the first one that he made, he basically kind of had to have help come in to re-edit and get the first Star Wars done because it was way behind schedule. When they, It made a lot of money, so they needed a sequel. So the guy who directed the Empire Strikes Back was not a George Lucas, and it was he was not a big Star Wars fan. He just made a cool movie, and that's really the best one. Yeah. Well, that made a lot of money, and, and Lucas got more power and and for uh, over the production of Return of the Jedi. Re, uh, Return of the Jedi, and then all of a sudden you see Ewoks and a bunch of child, <laughs> and then you know uh, the the bar uh, C three PO falling off the damn sand speeder and <laughs> sinking down to his ankles in the sand and all this goofy shit. That's Lucas. Well, eventually he ended up having total control over Episode One, Two, and Three. And look at what happened. The more control you gave uh-huh. him, the more it became a child's movie because that's what he wanted. The weird right. thing of the prequels that I always thought, though, I mean, is that he seemed like he was trying to make a kid's movie with, you know, little bitty Anakin and, this, and the pod racers yeah. and Jar Jar and all that kind of stuff. But then on the other hand, you have all these really long, interminable scenes yeah. of like people talking yeah. about politics and trade exactly. routes and stuff like that. And I'm like, what on earth made you think that any children would sit through yeah. that? So now you're trying to make some kind of weird hybrid They're of an very adult politic movie. Yeah. Right. It ends up being like Hong Kong theater, where it's trying to be everything to everyone. And, but especially the children and all family fun. And then we're going to talk about politics and philosophy. And so religion. it'll be something for everybody. It's, but and it doesn't something for fucking nobody. work. All right. Yeah. The reason why... Uh, Empire Strikes Back was so brilliant is that it didn't care whether or not you liked it. It just told you that story. Yeah. It was awesome. Right. It wasn't trying to be everything to everyone. It took you on. The perfect movie was actually Raiders of the Lost Ark, but that's that's a side story. <laughs> it did what it did. <laughs> By the way, uh, a mythical creature just walked in. Luke is here, so you gotta say hello to him. He can't hear you. He doesn't have earphones right now, but uh, he can hello, say hello to you. Whoever you are. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're talking about some really interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. There was something else I was going to say, but I forgot what it was. It was about Star Wars. Um, oh, some people are bagging on the new one. Um, what's the name of the damn thing? I've seen it a million times. Uh, Force Awakens. Force Awakens. Yeah. Force Awakens was brilliant. Because it was a Star Wars movie, it looked like a Star Wars movie. There was very little CG. It looked, it was, it, it brought it back to its base. And uh, some people were saying, "Well, what about the the, the Star Killer base? Kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a remake." 
Yeah, they did. They rebooted it, but I think you had to prove you had you had to do Star Wars again to reboot that series to prove to people that you could actually make a Star Wars movie now. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree with that for sure. I really um, yeah. Force I'm all in now. I'm, I'm I'm waiting to see where they could take it. I like yeah. Rogue One too. Rogue One was good. Yeah, that yeah. was really good. Let me get you guys' opinion on. Um, other topics that you guys talked about, and this is kind of in the vein of like kind of recovered memory and the um, probably the unreliability of it. Yeah. Uh, which would be like, I kind of put these together a little bit in the topics. So I thought they were very similar was the whole Sybil thing mm-hmm. and yeah. also the satanic panic. Uh-huh. Which the Satanic Panic episode is probably one of my favorite episodes. That was, that's actually still my favorite one to do. And that is was like it? our second episode. Ever. Yeah, I love it when you guys are talking about the video where the guy's talking about the Satanic toys. Yeah. <laughs> we had such a good and time. he pulls out it. Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't really say what Jenny said about his lips on this show, but I'll, <laughs> I'll let everybody listen to that episode. But... Uh, <laughs> What are you guys' thoughts about that? First of all, how old are you guys? I am 40. Rob is uh, about five years younger than me. Okay, so we're all basically the same. There is nothing like being 16 years old and and hearing them say this shit. They're going to pull out Skeletor and tell you that that was satanic. Yeah. would just bust up laughing like man these people these people don't know what the hell they're talking about no, they <laughs> dungeons and dragons you know it's gonna get you to sacrifice your family like what the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> just trying to hide monster manual and fiend folio because you're afraid your parents are gonna burn it you know yeah because yeah. you kind of had that you had that problem and i think you talked a little off bit about on, on the show your, off your stepdad was kind yeah, of like off that. And see my parents were very um Whatever they didn't, come. Well, you know, I wasn't super yeah. into Dungeons and Dragons, but I was like into goth. I was into horror, yeah. you know, and all that kind of stuff. And they were just like, "Whatever you, you know, yeah. you like that, okay." But um, she talking about they asked a question about recovered memories. Though. Yeah, You're the, was, she's the expert on that. Well, the problem about that, and like I said, the Sybil case, I'm not really sure because the whole uh, multiple personality. It's a very rare. Um, psychological disorder. I think, you know, I, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of people that would actually be kind of, uh, you know, diagnosed with that. And I feel like people that do have it, they're aware that they have other, it's not like they kind of like totally black out. I don't think, I mean, from what I've heard of people that actually suffer from it, like I said, it's not that many people. Right. But I think the whole problem arose and a lot of this happened in the sixties and seventies. For some reason, everybody got super into not only multiple personalities, but also um, like reincarnation and the fact that you could be hypnotized and you could remember stuff that you had blocked out and things like that. And I feel like that really went way, way, way off the rails to a point where it was almost like, you know, when the satanic panic happened, it was almost like a modern day witch hunt. Yeah. yeah. You were having these people coming out saying, oh, well, I had a doctor hypnotize me and he said that my parents made me have babies when I was 12 and then made me eat them. And all of a sudden, when obviously that didn't happen. Yeah. The big Martin preschool case. That's that's the part of it. That's not funny about the satanic yeah. panic stuff. And that's what I mean. And in, in a way, it's like I almost didn't want to bring it up on the satanic panic show, even though it's like a huge part of that, because I'm like, well, 
you know, yeah, it's funny that you had all these kind of fundamentalists talking about how evil Dungeons and Dragons were and talking about heavy metal and yeah. how everyone was worshiping the devil and stuff. But that had real world consequences. Yeah. I, you know, it's easy for us to blame those churches and those religious fanatics, but really they weren't responsible. They were just responding to the demand. Who was responsible was the media. They yeah. were making tons of money. Well, yeah, they look at all They wanted those shows. Yeah. They wanted those shows. And then Geraldo and all these shows, they wanted these stories to come on because well, they yeah. made money. Yeah, everybody watched like, them. What you have to do, you have the same thing going on today. All you got to do is just look at all these little clickbaity news programs that you have now. They've descended into that kind of mentality. Well, um, and I feel like it's almost kind of like I, I read a book a while back and I can't remember what it was called, but it was kind of about the old days of the newspapers and how these really powerful men would buy these newspapers and then they would compete with the other news. So they would just make stories up yeah, or right. they, they would just put like the craziest stuff you could put in there because then as now, the more spectacular something was, the gory or something was, right. the more copies it sold. So I feel like humans are not any different. It's just kind of like different iterations yeah. of the technology, which kind of comes along and yeah, every and, so often. And, and it was also happening in the uh, the UFO scene. I mean, what was his name? Doug, uh, Frank Corso, I think what his name was. He was a colonel in the at the Pentagon, right? And, uh, in the army, he was a head. He was the head of foreign intelligence research, which really not a big deal. Law back in those days, the law was. He went from he tried to make a living saying that fiber optics and uh, these woven materials and everything that they all came from a Roswell alien crash. Well, we know the design lineage and where all that stuff comes from. Know the people that invented all that stuff and how they did. So, you know, that that's not true. And towards the end of his life, the next thing he knows, he's telling, he's making money going on shows and you had to pay him to go on the show. All right. He didn't go on those shows for free. Talking about the time that uh, the time machine yeah. that the army built, that the army built a time machine. And uh, no, I don't believe so. Yeah, this is all kind of reminiscent of like the Andrew Basiago stuff. And yeah, we've, we've talked about some of that stuff on this show. Just yeah. like people making almost like making stuff up. <laughs> you can get it. You can get a guy who maybe he's got a good story. All right. And it might be true. But the media keeps banging on him and banging on him and banging on him. And 20 years later, he's telling more stories and another story. Well, yeah, he's just, you have to keep embellishing it you because otherwise, because nobody wants, yeah, like I said, I mean, and I, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to, when I first started writing paranormal nonfiction, I said, okay, I don't want it to be like Amityville Horror. I don't want it to be like these books that are just essentially horror novels under the nonfiction banner. Yeah, a veneer of nonfiction. Right. I said, if I'm going to write, you know, when I wrote your book, Mammoth Mountain, I was like, just tell me exactly what happened. Don't embellish it. Don't make up stuff that didn't happen. Just tell me exactly. And that's what I'm going to write. If people don't like it, that's tough. Well, we agreed on that before we started writing the book. It says, I'm just going to, we're going to shoot straight. Just exactly what we remember going down. You know, we, and that's families. the same thing. And, you know, the ones that I wrote with Steve Mara were the same. And, you know, he's a parapsychologist. He's not he's not um, apt to embellish things or make things. So he's very scientific. Yeah. Minded. Lots, hey, lots so, of boring paperwork you have to go through. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, like sometimes 
some of the stuff that he said happened on a particular case. Like I thought it was cool because he's a parapsychologist. He's like, okay, well I saw this and I couldn't explain it, but I can understand how people reading it would be like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like they would think it was boring because it was just, Oh look, a candlestick moved a foot. Right. Like people would be like big deal. Yeah. Usually a real paranormal event is shocking to the people who see it because they're like, damn, that doesn't happen. Right. But it doesn't make a good tale. You can't make a movie around that. Right, know? exactly. Yeah. Well, you can't talk about that for an hour. <laughs> here's here's the topic and uh I wanted to save the best for last. Uh-oh. <laughs> Carl Tanzler. <laughs> this is actually the first episode that uh Rob heard. <laughs> is this necrophilia? It is. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Tanzer, and she clicks over to a page that she had, and it's got the picture of that dude's face. And I immediately remembered where the hell this came from. That's that necrophile. Yes, yeah. Yeah. RRS Tom, you like to call him Mr. Peanut. Yeah. Oh, Mr. <laughs> yeah, he does. He looks like the planet now, Peanut. Here, the <laughs> That when we did the necrophile show, which was about Carl Tanzler and um, Anatoly Moskvin, who was a Russian. This, first of all, this motherfucker is totally unacceptable. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, just, I'm mad thinking about it. I, never mind. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure what we decided to do, you were the one that thought of doing that yeah, no, because, because the, you the, saw a documentary you're like who is that guy that had the dead girl that made that and he made her look like a doll and kept her yeah well the thing is is i was just skirting over it superficially yeah. i didn't really, I didn't really <laughs> you didn't well, think. Let, let's let, let's tell the story here I, let, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> what's the story about this guy <laughs> just in case he's got a you know well, Carl Tanzler, very famous. Now, he didn't kill anyone, I should say. He's not like the kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer thing where he's like, oh, I'm going to kill people and leave them around in my apartment because I'm lonely or anything like that. But evidently, he fell in love with a woman named Elena Milagro de Hoyos while she was still alive. He was a patient. She was a patient of his, I believe. And... When she died, she died quite young. He basically went and stole her body and kept it yeah. in his house for many years. Yeah. And as she began to like deteriorate, he kind of um well didn't he like make like I don't know if it's it like was paper mache, pa- like paper mache yeah. like over top of her yeah. body. Um he made her into a paper mache doll. Pretty much, but her body was in there. Yeah, and it was kind of a long, convoluted story of how much he loved this girl, and just oh man, it's just nasty. He <laughs> he took a toilet paper tube. So they say. <laughs> man, this I can't bring myself to. <laughs> he took a toilet paper tube, and and inside that toilet paper tube, took a couple pieces. I think it was rubber. Yeah. Uh huh. Been there and made a badge. Yeah. That way, <laughs> a flashlight, but like attached to a corpse. Up in there, up in there. That way he could be. He, and he's telling the cops that that way he could be with her like man and woman and all this kind of and just God. God. <laughs> could you imagine that? Your face. I can face, imagine it, but I. Your face I would to, rather you're not. face to face with this putrid corpse wrapped in paper yeah. with that creepy looking painted face on it. He was he was in love. 
Yeah, that the, woman was gone, man. It was, dude, it was, no. And it wasn't even a good paper mache. No. Like, it just looked really no. It looked like something the old 70s Doctor Who, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, was what was that thing from? from the talons of Wang Chiang, you know, that little Mr. Sin. Yeah, That little yeah. ventriloquist, Chinese ventriloquist dummy that was running around killing like that, people. Actually, yeah, it yeah. looked like that. I mean, do you think... <laughs> If he was going to have sex with it, you'd think he would do a better job of making it look good. No, and it was just like in the face, he just drew it on there like you just... It was kind of half Yeah, it's like he just drew it on there like you just give a kid a pen and a paper and just draw it from his face, you know? Not and everyone could be an artist, you know? <laughs> but he was just like, that's good yeah, enough. Yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> I'm down with that. I don't really look at her face. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I was uh, I, I I was reading a little bit more about it today, and they said that just kind of like trying to familiarize myself a little more with the case. And there were some rumors that he because uh, they took the body away, yeah. the police came and took it away. But there was some speculation that he had taken the body again or gotten some parts and made another dummy. And the the rumor supposedly, and this isn't substantiated, was that he when he died, he was holding this thing. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I've heard that. You as got well. some dude, you got some real super betas out there, all right? This is just how could a man be that low? What yeah. do you what do you need the body for? Why don't you just make the whole thing out of paper mache? There couldn't have See, been anything. See, that's left what I wondered about. You don't even right. need it. Bones, you know, well, real dolls didn't exist at the time, so. But, if but he you was didn't gonna, need the corpse. That's what we mean. Yeah. Was, <laughs> hey, why yeah. didn't you just do that to start with just, and leave the body where it was? He didn't think it through. It'd been a lot less stinky. It'd been, sure. Yeah, it'd be more sanitary. You couldn't get in trouble for it. He didn't think this shit through. He's just gonna. <laughs> he's like, I'm gonna go down there in that crypt and I'm gonna pull her out. <laughs> My favorite part of that show was, was when you were talking about how. You know, he he left her in there for a while. She was in the crypt for like a year or something, yeah, and like was, and like and like Tom says, yeah, he let her cook a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't fresh, bro. He liked he liked him like that. No. <laughs> Man, those those weren't those let maggots. Let him stew a little those bit. Those maggots were having their way with that woman. <laughs> and, and of course, it happened in Florida. So that's the beginning of Florida, man. I guess right. No, like I'm from here. Like I was born in. <laughs> You're, you were not born here. No, you could you imagine the heat and the humidity down that's inside that? That's what I mean. That See, that's... Key West. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. like even hotter than here. And this is pre-air conditioning. So his house would have been hot. Yeah. And he's keeping that rotten old thing in there, man. That's nasty. That's just... <laughs> I'm getting mad thinking then, about it. <laughs> Again. See, they can think it's funny. Shit. It mad. is funny. Okay. Yeah. That's you, why, you in a laugh, way... Laughing at my suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to wrap, wrap my head around it. I, I, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty perplexing, Tom. <laughs> I. I, I <laughs> it's me. It's not just me. See, like, no, I don't know no, no, no. Why, like, <laughs> it bothers me, but not as much as it bothers you. I maybe because I'm a horror writer and I yeah, just have, yeah. I have to imagine that stuff all the you're, time. You're imagining it as if it's in fiction. I'm imagining it as no. if I'm there seeing it. I am too. And then I'm yeah. having to do it with this thing. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine, could I get off on that? No. <laughs> what was this dude thinking? What was this dude thinking? Oh, I'm trying to put myself in this dude guy's shoes. So yeah. That's how I'm <laughs> See, I, And I like, don't want to be in this dude's shoes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? 
I'm well, guys, th- thank you so much. So, one of my other favorite episodes lately has been your episode where you talked about the demon child. I mean, that was just classic all the way around. Favorite, favorite uh, haunting. Still, man, said I could. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom's uh, impression of the dad, where he's just going through a change, just boys. <laughs> <laughs> You saw the episode? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. I listened. I listened to you guys show about it too. Uh, where can uh, where can people hear the podcast? And uh, what's next with you guys? I, I understand that you guys were on a network, but you're not now. But uh, and you guys have a Patreon too. So yeah, we get. So actually, the easiest way. I mean, we have a YouTube channel. Obviously, um, we also have. I have a WordPress blog at uh, wordpress.com or 13 o'clock podcast or 13 o'clock podcast.wordpress.com, however they do it. Um, and I put the audio version on there. I also put the audio version on archive.org. If you go to archive.org and search for 13 o'clock podcast, we have a page on there and that has all the audio. But like I said, if you want to watch the one with the slideshow and everything like that, it's mm-hmm. YouTube. And that's where our new um, movie reviews are and yeah. 13 o'clock in minutes. Which yeah. Is our list and tomorrow, show. tomorrow we got a show about Elizabeth Bathory going up. Yes. Oh, doing- nice. Okay. Well, that, that's up on Tuesday. Up on Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. just recorded it today. Tuesday, yeah. So yeah, yeah, we we're talking about that. It's, that was, that was, a, that was a request. Good. It's pretty good. That yeah. was a request. And, um, yeah, so we're going to keep doing, uh, the shows. We're going to do, uh, more movie reviews because those are really fun and people seem to like those. Yeah. And, um, my true crime book will be out probably before I'm trying to get it out before Halloween. I'm hoping because yeah. we're, cause we're going to be at spooky empire, the horror convention, um, October 27th, 28th, 29th, which is here in Orlando at the orange County convention center. Yeah. And I want to have the book out before we go to that. Yeah. So, I, so I can sell them there. But we, yeah, we're going to be on a bunch of the author panels and stuff like that. At that, time. yeah, I'm going to be handing out booze and handing out booze. <laughs> we need to run the sick and twisted panel. Yeah, it's Friday night at nine p.m. and I get to drink the booze too. While <laughs> Last time I did talk about talk about Carl Tanzler. I know. Dude, I was toasted, man. I was toasted. There. It was Maybe very was. funny though. Yeah, and I have to say, when last year we were on the sick and twisted panel. He really had the whole showstopper story of the entire weekend. Yeah. With the story that you told about when you were in the army. Yeah. Uh, on uh, Crash Rescue. On Crash Rescue and yeah. the bus with all the people that were cut in half and stuff like that. Well, they that. weren't all cut in half. Ooh. Well, some of them were cut in one, half. One was. So, yeah. I, it, yeah. But it was funny because he told this story. This really happened. And he was talking about the story, just the way you told it was so funny. And yeah. and the whole room just went quiet. You could hear like yeah. a pin drop in there. Make a long story <laughs> short, there was one of the girls, it was, it was an Israeli girl. And bus got sideswiped by a tractor trailer carrying a bulldozer. And that bulldozer blade went through the side of that bus and it killed a bunch of people. The wounded girl evacuated. By the time we got there, we were just there for cleanup. They were the cleanup crew, yeah. One of the, one of the bodies that I drug out of there was, a, was an, an Israeli girl, a real hottie. Uh, her head was gone though, but I saw her photograph from her ID, and she was just wearing a tube top and a, and shorts. Where was Man. this? Sinai Peninsula, Egypt. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Nineteen ninety four. Wow. And, yeah. Make a long story short, some friends of mine threw a plastic bag at me later on after we put her in the truck. And uh, in that bag was that girl, what was left of that girl's head. Ugh. And I 
tell that story. <laughs> Jeez. I had to climb in the back of that pickup truck with those bodies and kind of sit, kind of sit on them. So they, they wouldn't were, fall off. So they wouldn't fall out. They were in, they were in body bags though. Yeah. That's a to, hell, that's a hell of a detail to be on. Yeah. I had to ride in there. I think there were about 16 of them. In and there. they were all like chopped yeah. up and stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't see them though. Yeah. But yeah, that was a pretty horrible yeah. story. But yeah, he told that story at Spooky Empire last yeah. year. <laughs> well, say, guys, <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure talking with you guys. I think we could talk all night, but uh, I think we're going to call it here. Okay. Uh, so thanks a lot, guys. Stay on the line for us, and uh, we'll finish up, uh, come back, finish up on Conspiracy Normal. Okay. Thanks very much for having us on again. See you guys. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. <laughs> hey, it's your boy, Lukey. Back on Conspiracy Normal. I know, it's the third time in a row. Yeah. We fourth. Even, fourth? Fourth. So we did two episodes last time, and you were for both of them. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, you guys kept giving me the guilt trip, so I was just like, <laughs> I guess I got to at least show up to like stay a part of it or whatever. Yeah, we, we, we're, we're <laughs> such oppressive friends. Um, yeah. We even made the announcement that you weren't here. And then Rob said something about like, like he, people don't need to know that because there's a lot of people that don't know who you are. Well, I said, I was wondering if there's, if there's a uh, feel like regular listeners out there, like they keep talking about this Luke guy. <laughs> Can we cue up that music from uh step brothers? Like at the end where, uh, Catalina wine mixer and just like have my voice like on top of it and like all the epic things I've ever said. <laughs> we do need to do a Luke super mix. Yeah, we do. I'd have to scour all the archives and find some really good in- <laughs> inane, insane Luke quotes. Yeah, there's not very many that are uh, worthy of such an epic. We could song. do a whole show that is a that is a Luke super mix and just put it out. <laughs> Well, that might, that might be something I could work on. Maybe if, we could do that. If you soon. do a Luke show, there's going to be a lot of bleeps in it because I'm going to. If it's on Patreon, if it's on Patreon, we can say whatever we on, want. Yeah, oh, if sweet. it's on Patreon, we can say whatever we want. Because if I if I am able to speak raw and unrestrained, then I can get my thoughts across a lot more clearly. If you if you drop a few f f bombs yes, along it, the way, it really helps. Us. I'm like a, a Alyssa. I'm like I, I have to drop my f bombs. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like the conjecture for my sentences, like. Can I it's, buy you a thesaurus? I mean, I already have one, but it's just collecting dust. Oh, uh, it just know? sits there and collects <laughs> right. dust. Yeah. All the other books too, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Affirmative. Yeah, there was a, a Song of Ice and Fire book um, sitting there. I think they were, well, the first one, right? Game of Thrones. The first one that I was like, who's reading this? And he says, guess. It's not me. It's Kira. <laughs> <laughs> um Real quick, guys, we're going to close this show out because it's over two hours long. But um, 
I want to thank Dr. Future for coming on, and I want to thank uh, Tom and Jenny for being on the show as well. That was a real fun interview we did with them. Oh, they're just kind of cool, just like laid back, cool discussion. We're definitely going to have them back on, I think, for you know, because we could just so much more we could talk about with them, some of the stuff that they that they that they cover. And please, guys, please check out their podcast, Thirteen O'clock. It is uh, probably one of the best podcasts out there. It is really entertaining just the dynamic between the two of them you guys kind of got a taste of it and the range of topics show. too is awesome yeah exactly exactly i'd like to get more into some of like that vein myself on some on some shows where we just talk about different topics like that what, serial killer stuff well uh, just anything really um but yeah that's i mean that's an interest i mean it's kind of a morbid interest but yeah it's definitely there um there's a few people that I've heard on other podcasts talk about some of this true crime stuff. That's there's a lot of interest in that right now. Um, so, well, that's it, guys. Thank you so much, uh, Rob. Can you tell them about our Patreon and where they can find it? Yeah, um, we got a little community growing over there. We post uh, bonus episodes and other little little uh, bonuses for people that want to contribute to the show. That's at Patreon.com/slash/ConspiraNormal. Go sign up and. Check it out. I think we got what, like six or seven episodes on there now. Oh man, we've Around done there? at least one a month, maybe two in a month. So I think we're yeah, I think we're around about seven or eight, possibly. It's been since December of last year that we've had it. That long? I think so. Yeah. Well, it's growing, and there's uh, going to be a new one every month on there. So check it out. If there's anything that catches your eye, or if you just want to help support the show, that's a great way to do it. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time, which will be soon for us. On Conspiranormal! Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.